Bond fans. Thank you very much for checking out this latest episode of Bond by Numbers. It's our latest look down the literary gun barrel, another source material deep dive for Fleming enthusiasts and just fans of the books. A couple of weeks ago, we tackled Dr. No on the show. Now, of course, that's a film that started it all. And now we're excited to share with you a full review of its literary inspiration from 1958. Although it was the first adapted, Dr. No was actually the sixth 007 book written by Fleming, and as you'll hear, critics of the time were divided on both its import and its appeal. After delivering some serious Cold War spycraft in From Russia With Love, and you can check out episode 23 to hear Josh and I tackle that text, Fleming deviated a little and turned his attention to penning an adventure of more pulp and less politics than its predecessor. There are some outstanding highlights in this book, though, not least of which are the evocation of Fleming's Jamaica and the hardening of our protagonist. So, yeah, whether you're an aficionado of Fleming's oeuvre or just a casual reader, you hopefully won't leave this deep dive review of Dr. No disappointed. Josh and I had a ton of fun reading and reviewing this one. And just before we get started, a caution, major spoilers ahead, okay? Uh, so if you haven't finished Dr. No yet, or you want to play the home game and score it along with us, then now's your chance before listening. We'll return in a couple of weeks with our discussion of License to Kill. So yeah, thanks again for tuning in, and be sure to let us know what you thought about this book or any other Fleming novel by getting in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or just email us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing here on the show, please, please, please let us know Tell others about Bond by Numbers as well. We love interacting with Bond fans like yourself. We really appreciate word of mouth promotion. The recommendations that several of you have given already have really helped to grow our audience, strengthening our links within the Bond community online and beyond. So it's been really, really great having so many people uh, jump on board. And we look forward to meeting more of you. So by all means, let us know uh, if you enjoy what we're doing and spread the word. So thanks again, everyone. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Bowman and the BFG talking Bond and books. This is episode six entitled Bond, No and the Honeyed Kraken. Yes, we're talking about the sixth installment today, Dr. No. Joshua, how you doing? Not too bad, Scott. Yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. Yes, it's been an exciting time reading this book. I'm really looking forward to getting into it with you. Yes, it's quite vivid. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, it's quite vivid. And quite a departure, I think, from the earlier, well, certainly the most recent one that we've looked at from Russia with Love. Um, I don't know, man. You got any starting gambits on this one? Uh, Another alternative title I was thinking of was uh, Dr. No or How Ian Fleming Regressed into a 13-Year-Old Pubescent Boy. Yeah. (laughs) You know what? It's funny you mention that. I had a couple of longer ones, too, uh, but they just wouldn't fit. So what are you going to (laughs) do? What are you going to do? Well, you got to work with what you got. Got to work with what you got. You're absolutely right. Well, look, man, wanna, you want to fly into this? Well, I mean, I think we we should. And one thing you pointed out was really uh, so true about this book, and now I think about it more, is such the contrast between this and the previous novel, From Russia With Love. Yeah. From Russia With Love, you know, with, 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 with the exception of a few moments, is a pretty straightforward spy thriller. Mm-hmm. And this 
is like some Doc Savage uh, adventure serial from the 40s or something like that with um, Orientalism and all those other wonderful colonial mindsets they had at the time. Yeah, this this is a wild ride. And uh, from a sociocultural anthropological point of view, it is definitely worth some investigation. And so I look forward to maybe putting putting the book under the microscope uh, and looking at it through that lens a little bit, too. But I will say this as a disclaimer. I really enjoyed this novel. I did, too. I did as well. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really good one as well, but uh, maybe for very different reasons than I've rated in the past. The same reason why people like that old Batman and Robin TV <laughs> show, perhaps? Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I think, you know, it's it's worth time now, six books in, just to really briefly uh, remind the listeners and posterity of our scoring system and our angle. You want to go ahead and do that? Absolutely. So we have what's called ANGLE. Uh, that's an acronym for Adversaries and Allies, Narrative, Girls, Location, or Locale, and Equipment. Right. So what we do is we judge out of, out of, out of a merking of five. We, we rate each one of these, these features um, in the novel. Yeah. And then we kind have a fun way of condensing everything, you know? Yeah. And we get a scoring index from that so that after we finish this entire series, we'll have uh, about as close to a mathematical rating as we could for Fleming's entire Bond series. Once again, it's uh, Bowman and the BFG. Uh, we're both Bond enthusiasts. We've been reading, enjoying, studying, uh, listening to Bond and all of the different features of his world since we can really remember being um, cinephiles slash readers. Ever since my grandmother sent me that VHS copy uh, of Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, yeah. Too bad that was your first, though. Uh, not really. I think, no. if any way, it made me appreciate Roger Moore on a level that my own intellectuality could not... not I'm not trying to put Roger down, but the films and some of the films in general, the era that he was in, yes. was not a cerebral era for James Bond. It wasn't. I don't... No, you're right. It wasn't. Um, but then I say that about, you know, being snide with the Roger Moore films being over the top and ridiculous, and then I read Ian Fleming's original Doctor No. <laughs> so... Yeah. And you know what's funny, man? I'm glad we're talking about Roger Moore here. I have written in the margins of at least four pages. This is exactly what I imagine Roger Moore would do. This is exactly what I think his Bond would do. I can see him saying these lines, not Connery, not somebody else. And those are not... I, I want to see Roger Moore fight a Kraken now. Well, you, you said it in my mind. You said it in my mind. Well, I don't know about that, but I, there, there are bits of dialogue here that where Bond is really quite soft and he's really quite... Um, laid back, and I can see more delivering those lines. And it's funny because Roger Moore was, of course, one of Fleming's original choices, along with David Niven, um, for the role. And you know, it's wait, you know what? We can maybe talk about that at the end of this series when we do our series books, series films comparison. Absolutely. Anyway, right, man. Well, usually what we do here is we get some information on the publication and the history of Doctor No as a novel and kind of how it featured in the world and among critics at the time. And then you give a brief plot summary, just five or six minutes, kind of going through the main points of the story. And then we get into talking about it, the writing, and then we'll finish off, as you've already said, with our angles. So unless you got anything else to start with, um, I'm ready to talk to you about Dr. No and how it was received back in 
well, um, I got some notes scribbled here, and most of what, most of what, well, the facts that you hear are, are facts, obviously, but um, some of these little ideas here were kind of tributaries off the rivers of my research, if you will. Um, first of all, I, I thought it was interesting. I, I learned a few things that um, Wikipedia wouldn't tell me um, in doing a bit more research into how this book was received, and I've learned that ideas for Dr. No came from a couple of different places, and this the concept of an oriental figure master villain almost like a magician type figure influenced fleming before he wrote this the are you are you familiar with the fu manchu stories absolutely fu manchu oh. played by charlie chan yeah what do you know about the um, what do, what do you about what do you know about the the series of novels themselves you know by uh, sax rodman they're essentially uh, an orientalist kind of um adventure thrillers and Fu Manchu was the ultimate villain you know the long long like the Mandarin kind of looking fellow long kind of hair and the long fingernails and duplicitous evil yellow-skinned Asian yeah well okay I mean that's basically it I think you've nailed it um (laughs) that was one of the influences for this this villain um but ideas for the the book itself I suppose the locations um came from an unsuccessful television series uh, that was entitled Commander Jamaica, and apparently Fleming was supposed to do this series with a producer, um, a guy by the name of he- Henry, pardon me, Henry Morgenthau III, and the the story was originally called this book was originally called The Wound Man before he went and changed the title to Doctor No. Interesting. Yeah, I kind of thought it was, and um, you know, one of the things for which we've given credit or given Fleming credit in the past with his other text is that. He was a traveler, and he used that well in his writing. So he did a lot of traveling about and learning about his subjects. And good writers will do that, even if they're just mass-marketed writers and not so much, you know, the literati. They will know their subjects, and I think that's really important. And well, he knows Jamaica, that's for certain, but that's for obvious reasons as well. Yeah, I'm just traveling. Of course, because he lived there. But in March of 1956, Fleming visits the or visits a flamingo colony in the Bahamas. Now, this was kind of like mm. a protected protected flamingo colony um precisely it was at uh, it was at the island great inagua and he went along with his buddy ivor bruce and delegates from the american museum of natural history and the flamingo protection society and of course <laughs> birds play such an important part and bird shit plays such an important part yes. to the backstory of dr no and i know we'll, we'll get into that but I just thought it was interesting that, you know, he's had himself firsthand experience in traveling to these places and looking at um, these sanctuaries and learning about the behavior of birds and more importantly, perhaps, the protection of these birds. Not to mention, too, that James Bond, the name James Bond comes from the name of an ornithologist. It does. And, and I made a note in my book as I was reading, I wonder how many of these facts about birds that Fleming gives us in the first third of the novel come from the real James Bond. <laughs> anyway... That's neither here nor there. But while Fleming was on this trip in March of 56, um, they had a Land Rover that was outfitted with oversized tires. And that very vehicle became the model for the dragon that we read in the book. Ah, the dragon. Love it. Yeah, pretty cool. Anyway, yeah, this is the sixth book. And it was published on the 31st of March, 1958. So just about two years after Fleming took that trip um, to the uh, bird sanctuary. And again, published by Jonathan Cape, again, Fleming inspired ideas for the first cover, where Honey Rider's kind of silhouetted figures looking like uh, Venus um, on the beach from behind, which, of course, is uh, rendered pretty descriptively in the book. 
And in June, a couple months later, it was published in the United States. It sold pretty well originally. By now, of course, Fleming is a household name. Um, but the biggest boost in the sales, not surprisingly, came after the release of Dr. No, the film, in 1962. Uh, get this. In the seven months following the film's release, in 1962, this book sold over 1.5 million copies. And if you think about that 50, 55 years ago, that, that's an incredible feat. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see this has been definitely one of the favorite airport reads, you know, and I think people who who weren't into some of the nitty gritty stuff, buy stuff from Rush of Love, they probably really enjoyed it just as a, as like a big pun of kind of a pulp adventure. Yeah. So I can see this uh, reaching lots of markets. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, there's a escapist element in this that doesn't feel quite as serious, and of course not when we've got a fucking giant squid at the end of it. But hey, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, Right. Even the so, film version of Watchmen took out the giant squid, Well, but Fleming kept it in. So Yes, he did. And we can discuss, you know, whether or not this would make for a good film today, later. Um, opinion at the time. What do you think? What's your guess? I would say after a lot of the praises from, from Rush of Love, despite the negative ones that we read, the, the overall praise about the, about the story... I would say it was probably uh, a 180. Yeah, you wouldn't be too far wrong. Um, let me read you some of the some of our old standards. Um, now, Josh and I have, while we've been doing this, looked at the work of uh, a couple of different writers. Uh, we've been, we've been trying to keep our review summaries pretty concise, but we have looked at the New Statesman, the New York Times, the Times Literary Supplement. So we're going back to those sources plus a couple of others. Paul Johnson, writing in the New Statesman, says this, I've just finished the nastiest book I ever read. I had to suppress a strong impulse to throw the thing away. <laughs> okay, That's Paul Johnson in the New Statesman. Um, <clears throat> Maurice Richardson in The Observer, quote, The usual pseudo-masochistic free-for-all plus octopuses, end quote. <laughs> But it's, there's not even any octopuses, though, so that's incorrect. So he invalidates himself. It is incorrect. It's not. That's not the right arthropod. But uh, moving on, the New York Times. Our pal Anthony Boucher, who hates everything Fleming does, it seems, and is himself was himself a crime writer, though not as esteemed. I wonder if that could have been the chip on the shoulder. Never. Never. Anthony Boucher, writing in the New York Times at the time, said. It's harder than ever to see why an ardent coterie so admires Ian Fleming's tales. It's 80,000 words long with enough plot for 8,000 and enough originality for 800. <laughs> well, there's some mean tweets, man. There's some mean-ass tweets. You got it. Um, but it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad. For example, um, Philip Stead, writing in the Times Literary Supplement, did agree that it was too opulent a feast. However, he goes on to say a less accomplished writer lacking Mr. Fleming's quick description, quick, quick descriptive gift, sorry, and talent for lurid and natural style, lucid and natural style, would never have got away with this story. <laughs> I agree so, with that. Kind of like a backhanded compliment. And I, I, Yeah, I think Fleming, just to say, like, you could tell he had fun writing this story. Yeah, he did, definitely. Maybe too much fun. I think so, yeah. Um, and James Sando writing in the New York Herald Tribune, which, of course, 
probably was pitted against Anthony Boucher and the New York Times. But anyway, the New York Herald Tribune writes, the most artfully bold, dizzyingly poised thriller of the decade. <laughs> well... Well, I'm not sure about that, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I mean, Fleming said this about his own plots at the time this book was published. He said that they go wildly beyond the probable, but, I think not beyond the possible. It's very possible that someone could have enclosed a, a kraken into a small area off the side of an island with fenced in and then arranged an elaborate labyrinth so that the person could fall in. <laughs> and given certain uh, factors, that person could possibly survive such an encounter. It is possible, yes, of course. <laughs> it's also possible that I can take a <laughs> on the moon tonight. But, uh, I would, well, I, I would say, I don't know. Or would, they be, would they be the same odds of that happening? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know how you play that in, in Vegas. I, I wonder how, this, how the Saratoga Raceways would uh, take care of that one. I tell you what, I think Saratoga would give me better odds than getting a crack in, in a fenced part of the ocean on the side of your indoor layer. I think, I think I have better odds because we know that we can... We know that we can fly to the moon, unless you believe in all those conspiracy theories. We know people have landed on the moon. Um, taking a on it, that would be the tough part, because realistically, it was only until, what, 2013 that footage of the giant squid even existed. We knew that they existed somewhere in the depths of the ocean. But, yeah, I think I'd get better odds at Saratoga than the, the, the Kraken. Yeah, well, I guess it's, uh, you know. Whatever. All right, well. There we go. Let's get into this, Josh, um, because we've been talking about krakens and we've been talking about orientals stuck in mountains and we need to explain this and we need to dig into it and analyze it. All right. So essentially, uh, I guess to quote Dr. No, all of this started with those roseate spoonbills. These birds that inhabit uh, this island, uh, Crab Key off Jamaica, they're, they're losing their habitat there. And so the Audubon Society of America Bunch, there's a bunch of these old women are concerned about uh, these animals losing their habitat and all this kind of stuff. And they want to put a hotel for bird watching on, on Crab Key and everything. Little do they know that um, a German ch Chinese uh, half breed mad scientist with no hands is living on this island uh, in his own private stop, enclave. Stop. His I'm, own all pseudo I'm, I'm already laughing. I'm sorry, man. I'm already laughing. But yeah, okay. Right. Right. You can At his go. own. Yeah, his own private uh, social Darwinistic experiment on this island based on uh, mining guano. Now, we get, they get in the backstory of Dr. No later on, but essentially yeah. this interference from the outside world results in the, the death of some Autobahn Society people. But it also begins with the death of Strangways, who we met as the section head in Jamaica in Live and Let Die. That's right. And we liked him. A very kind of, okay. He was cool. Yeah, he had a patch eye and you could tell this guy was, you know, like had the kind of like Nick Fury kind of badass Brit commando aspect to him, you know? He and he was a really cool character. Uh, Little Die is full of cool characters. I mean, you have like Felix Leiter and you have Quarrel introduced and, and then of course you meet this guy Strangway. So automatically I was like, oh cool. When I saw that, when I read the book after seeing the movie, I had a much more emotional connection with Strangways. Yeah, so did I. We, he, we learn, actually... And his secretary. Yeah, I think I think that we learn, don't we, that he's he's kind of like Bond, and if Bond was to have kind of a cushier 
colonial job. That's probably how he would be, out to the cards every other night, home to do his wires, and then back out again for drinks. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost very similar to, to Fleming's life in a way, too. I, got, I kind of saw him as an Ian Fleming type as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway. But, again, so in the beginning of the Doctor Know the book, uh, and, of course, as you remember in the film, Strangways and his secretary are gunned down uh, by the three blind mice in Jamaica, in Kingston. Uh, and their death and their inability to answer the radio calls sends off a furor at MI6. And so M brings Bond, who just who apparently survived his tetra his blow his blowfish. I'm not going to pronounce the word right now, but the blowfish Tet- venom that was a club. Yeah, he managed to survive it barely thanks to Mathis. Interesting. And he is now. Inter- sorry, it's already interrupted there, dude. But uh, before you go on, interesting point about tetrodotoxin and that blowfish poison. Wade Davis, who we have earlier quoted on this show, the anthropologist responsible for a lot of fieldwork in Haiti, and most notably, perhaps, the Harvard researcher who uncovered the truth of the voodoo uh, zombie curse, so to speak, if I, if I can use those colloquial terms, um, yes. scientifically obtained an accurate sample of the uh, voodoo, kind of voodoo hex poison, which is supposed to turn you into a zombie, and that actually is the toxic substance, tetrodotoxin, which um, suspends the body in kind of a death-like state, which in turn allows a dead body, quote-unquote dead body, to be buried um, and then rise again. And it was really, really interesting. All of this stuff is heavily documented in The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is a book that I would recommend. Wade Davis is an awesome anthropologist. He's an awesome Canadian figure, actually. And I would strongly encourage anybody interested in that because it's set in Haiti. It's set in the tropics, and it's, it's a great work of nonfiction. Um, yeah, it's great. Anyway, there we go. Very good recommendation. That also connects back to the hoodoo uh, lore that we learned in Live and Let Die. So another great connection and another great example of the Fleming sweep, right? Yep. But Fleming had no understanding of Wade Davis at the time. I mean, Wade Davis didn't discover that until much later after the publication of this book. But it's just to say that Fleming is, is dealing with things now that would soon scientifically come to actually be, you know, understood. Absolutely. Right. Sorry, you were talking about so poison. I also wanted to mention the very poignant fact that uh, tetrodotoxin was almost killed Homer Simpson, too, when he ate that blowfish. Oh, good point. I don't, I don't recall how he survived that, though. I, I guess there was the wrong part of the... Like, he, he wasn't poisoned? Like, I, I don't know. I never figured that out. Beats me. I, I can't remember the episode, but I remember that. Well, that was 25 years ago or more, so I don't blame you for that. Was that an early one? Oh, that was an early seasons, man. That was like the first three or four seasons. Okay. It's, right. it's, it's mind-boggling to think that that was like... I saw that like in 1991. I know. Wild. And how many seasons... Anyways, we'll discuss the long, we'll say the longevity of the amazing longevity of the Simpsons for another podcast. Yeah. Um, going back to Doctor No, so so MI six so Bond, so M brings up Bond, and uh, one thing I want to point out that is interesting here is that this father son relationship uh, kind of uh, dynamic that we see with Bond and M that we've been talking about for the past couple of novels where. On pretty much is almost married to M and he'll do anything for him and through his loyalty as soon as M is showing him some kind of I don't know like just trying to treat him like another agent and make him realize that he messed up and that he shouldn't do this stuff and just being you know being the boss that he should Bond automatically hates him for the yeah. way that he was treating him like an, like like an impetuous child who didn't want to be taught a lesson you know and uh, it's a very interesting dynamic that he has in this novel 
And is. Bond is actually kind of really shitty with authority figures all the way through this novel. There's with M, there's with the governor in uh, Jamaica, although that guy kind of seems like a bit of a douche anyways. Uh, <laughs> and then there's just how he keeps rattling Dr. No and keeps trying to provoke him and piss him off like he's if Roger Moore in a Bond film, you know? Just totally... <laughs> <laughs> just totally not uh, using any kind of subtlety or, diplom or diplomacy whatsoever. Yeah, I, th I think you got something there. I mean, when we talk about narrative, we might want to talk about that because it's, it's a little unique in how this is the only, or so far, the first Bond book we've read that opens in this way that Bond and M are kind of, they're kind of pissed off. Bond is looking for something to, something a little bit more difficult, um, and he figures that, uh, M is just rubbing him off here on this case, and M is concerned, but it's kind of costumed in his gruffness. And, uh, you know, Bond's bored, but we don't get that normal sort of run-of-the-mill, um, white-collar, white-man problems like we got from the last three books. We get something a little different this time. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of PTSD in him and a little bit of anger, I kind of think, and probably a realizing of his failure but not really accepting it in that way. Yes. Uh, by the way... I do want to point out, though, the one thing we do learn, though, from Rush With Love is that Cleb is dead, and we also learn that Tatiana was killed as well. Well, I, I want to pick that up, because as we said last time, it ends in a cliffhanger, and we only get kind of hints at answers here. Yes, it's mentioned that the woman dies, but we're never really given an explanation of, uh, of which woman is being referred to. Um, do you... But they say the girl is dead. The girl is dead. That, that's what M says, so... And I want to think of Rosa Klebb. I don't think of a girl. I, I think of a, a woman or right. or something, you know? Like, it just seems like the girl is dead. And th there's not even a, even a thought of Bond. Usually in the other, in the other uh, Bond novels we've read so far, Bond is always, when the new, new novel begins, Bond is always thinking about his previous relationships. And he mentions how, he, how Tiffany Case left him and whatnot, you know? Like, those things are there and, and they're in his mind. But there's no thought whatsoever mentioned to Tatiana. Now, that could go with your point that perhaps Tatiana is scuffled away somewhere in, in, uh, in England out of sight and is being deprogrammed or being, you know, interrogated and they're getting all they can from her. Yeah. You know? And maybe Cleb is the one, and the one, that, the one that is dead. So I, I have no idea. Or maybe Fleming just decided that he didn't want to get back into her character and just said she's dead. Maybe he wanted to show just how brusque M was in that regard and just kind of show you how, like, you know, she was a pawn in a game, and she was a, she was an example of Bond's failure. Well, I've, I've got the bit right here in the book, the only reference to the girl, and this is what it says. Uh, Lucky he got away with it. Miracle. Thanks entirely to that Frenchman who was with him. That's Mathis, as you've already said. Uh, got your man on the floor and gave him artificial respiration as if he was drowning. Somehow kept his lungs going until the doctor came. Luckily, the doctor had worked in South America, diagnosed cur curare, and treated him accordingly. But it was a chance in a million. By the same token, what happened to the Russian woman? M said shortly, oh, she died. Well, many thanks, Sir James, and don't worry about your patient. I'll see he has an easy time of it. Goodbye. Okay. That's it. Okay. That's all we got, the Russian woman. So, I mean... The woman, yeah. I, I mean, is that the... I think, because he's talking about the poisoning, we're talking about Kleb. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. So, basically, Tatiana is just basically in some... Just tucked away in some, some place in rural England, and uh, she's getting, you know, she's... They're taking care of her. That's pretty yeah. much all. And if that's true, Josh, I, I don't know how you feel about that, but it's a bit of a letdown that we're we're meant to invest so much in this plot, including Tatiana last time around, and, and now we don't even get a conclusion to where she is. I don't know. It's a bit of a letdown for me. Let's just let's just go with your hypothesis that she's um, softly, you know, 
ditched away someplace in rural England awaiting, well, what? I mean, she'll have some sort of cushy job and protection under the uh, ministry, and that'll be it. Pretty much. Right, so, sorry, man, back to Dr. No. Let's get this plot summary done so we can sink in. Okay, yeah, I'm glad that Tatiana is safe from Rosa Klebb's uh, lesbian aspirations. Yeah, and that negligee she had on, it still gives me nightmares. Yes, yes. More so than Krakens, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> moving on, so Bond is dispatched to a uh, a month of sunshine. Uh, that to quote M, uh, because basically M thinks this is just uh, a coddling assignment, you know, and as an indicator to show that he messed up, and you know we're going to take care of you and stuff. But you enjoy your time in the sun, and then you'll come back to do some real work, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't really consider the disappearance of Strangways. Uh, they're not too worried about it. They just think he went off with a girl somewhere or something along those lines. And, you know, like, there's just not much concern about it. But at the same time, I kind of was... I, I guess people will get in this when we get into the angle, but I kind of found with Strangway's disappearance, like, there was kind of a an implausible reaction to it, in my opinion. Like, if this guy is, like, the head of section in Jamaica, something... And, he, you know, it is the Cold War. I mean, it, anything is possible, you know? And yeah. I guess they... they a person, but they just didn't seem concerned about it. But I just think M would be would have been a little bit more concerned about it, in my opinion. I'm 100% behind you. I think that M's reaction to Strangway's disappearance is terse and really unbelievable, given his rather surgical attention to other details in previous novels. Like you say, this this is the head of, um, well, he's the representative. Yeah, exactly, of the Secret Service there in Jamaica, which is still, of course, at times a colony at the time of the book, a colony of, of uh, United Kingdom or of England, and you know, he, he, his response to the disappearance of his top intelligence man there is rather lukewarm. He thinks it's a bit of a wasted effort that he just ran away with a girl and they'll just put in some other stooge. But that's a bit disappointing to see how, well, as I said earlier, gruffed or gruff um, M, M is with this. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. Like, I find, like, uh, for all of the vivid uh, escapism in this novel we're losing some of the nuances and details that even though some of the previous novels, you know, weren't exactly fully plausible scenarios, there were, these things brought a bit of characterization and realism. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding like with this novel, Fleming seems to just be kind of like moving more. It's not just, it's not like it's unreal writing. It's a bit, it's a bit lazy because you're trying to force the character to follow for the sake of the narrative, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, man. Yeah. That's one of the things that kind of irked me a little bit. But anyway, so Bond is sent off to Jamaica to his sunshine mission, and uh, he investigates the disappearance of Strangways. He's we're 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 introduced to Quarrel again. So Bond is working with Quarrel with, with this issue, working with the, the with Kingston House to solve the problem to find out where Strangways went. The evidence seems to be leading that um, was the, was was the fact that was was that the Audubon Society was basically per, um, pursuing Strangways to. To investigate what happened to their people there, and this kind of leads Bond onto the trail that brings him to Cab Key, Crab Key. That Doctor No is definitely covering something up on his island there. This um, this this interesting half ch ch Chinese man that everyone seems to fear, who has a very work a very efficient criminal network in Jamaica, uh, basically protecting whatever he is doing there. And this, of course, leads Bond and Quarrel to Crab Key. Uh, where you know they hear about, uh, or even before they hear about how he protects Crab Key from intrusion. Um, 
there, there's, there's talk of there's 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 the there's the, there's the camp that the Audubon Society held in the middle of the island that was uh that was that was basically torn down. Uh, there's the, the the plane crash death of the of the Audubon Society members, and then we have Strangway's death. There is a rumor of a dragon on the island, and this is, and so there's all these different factors that makes Crab Key a very fearsome place. And all this evidence leads Bond to realize there's something more going on here than just uh, a couple that just disappeared and left their left their uh, duty. Yeah. So abandoned their duty. So Bond and Coral, uh, uh, you know, they canoe to Crab Key. Uh, sorry, they sail to Crab Key, because eh, canoeing would be a bit, a bit of a, a bit of a a time a bit of a time. They sail to Crab Key, and once they arrive there. The situation then, of course, unfolds. Uh, on the island, they meet the um, Cromwellian descendant, Honey Rider. I never thought I would say those those words in a sentence. Uh, <laughs> Honey Child Rider, which the movie left out, was that's her full name. Uh, this kind of this uh, child, this very kind of fascinating child woman, Lady Tarzan type. Uh, that that essentially, you know, she's just in it for her seashells and and. Uh, does what she wants to do, living independently. You got to give her that, give her that credit. But we'll get into Honey Rider later. But essentially, um, the radar picks up that Bond and Quall are on the island, and so Doctor No sends his troops out, and Honey Rider is now caught into this mess as well. Um, and essentially, they this leads to a confrontation with, uh, after a very kind of a, a very tense scene in the marshes. Uh, in the mangrove swamps, this leads to the encounter with the dragon itself, a disguised marsh buggy with a flamethrower, uh, on the, uh, in the on the island where uh, Quarrel is killed and Honey and Bond are captured. They are then brought to basically a front for some one of Doctor one of Doctor No's main front, which is some sort of health spa, and they are taken to to comfortable chambers slash cells. Uh, where they are, where they are drugged, and then later on brought to dinner to meet Doctor No. And uh, I guess this guy has been very bored living on his island for a very long time. And him and Bond have a very philosophical and interesting discussion on the nature of power and all these sorts of things that Doctor No is interested in, and Bond is sort of repellent against. And it's actually a very interesting conversation. One of my favorite parts of the book, actually. Um, hmm. But Dr. No comes quite across as more to me, more than a Fu Manchu kind of, I think, I think surprisingly, Fleming really subverts the trope of the Fu Manchu uh, type with uh, Dr. No. I found him a really fascinating villain with interesting motivations, you know, and he had a very colorful backstory. And uh, that, that to me was one of the best parts of the book was uh, his character. He was a very interesting figure. And also the template, I think, for the iconic Bond villain in general. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Um, a lot of the cinematic features of a Bond villain. I don't necessarily agree with everything you're saying about his, uh, his backstory being really interesting and adding up. Um, but we'll see. I mean, you know, we haven't got there yet, have we? No, we haven't got there yet. Well, no. Josh, there's nothing left to do then, but you explain um, what happens after dinner. <laughs> so the whole drugging part was basically to give him rest enough to that he would his muscles would... would uh, relax and you know through all the ordeal he's been through on the island so far and it would also prepare them with a nice meal um with the energy that he needed for this labyrinth this obstacle course to test human um uh i guess endurance that that bond became and and also the absorbance of pain 
that Dr. No was fascinated with. He wants to make Bond a dot on a graph, on a chart, uh, with all these different experiments that he's going he's gonna to run on, 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 on his captives and his victims. Now, we do learn at dinner that not only is, is he trying to secure some sort of power for himself, Dr. No, in his own... Uh, and by through his privatization of, of all of his of all of his actions, he is also going to be working as a sort of a chess player with the with the Western and Eastern powers, you know, the NATO and Russia, by basically toppling um, American missiles uh, in, 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 into into the Atlantic and causing a lot of problems in that regard and becoming quite a master extortionist, you know. Yeah, almost like kind of like the, the Blofeld before Blofeld in many ways. Kind of, yeah. I uh, I found that. Well, again, we can we can get there, I guess, when we do our angles. But I was um, I was a little a little disappointed with that that whole oh great more fucking rockets and more bullshit about holding the world at ransom. But not. But he doesn't say he wants money. It's not about money. It's like it, it's about Clausewitz's power and having power. That's that's kind of what I liked about him though was that he All didn't right. care about the money. He just was like a crazy maniac. That's so, pretty much what yeah, he was. He, I guess so. Maybe if I read it that way. Um, but that, that's what you say. Interesting motives. That, that's not an interesting motive if you're a crazy maniac. Well, not no, not an interesting motive, but I, I don't know, like just the way that he was brought up and what he became, like what else could he have become given his scenario, you know, and how he was characterized. I just found him a very chilling villain, you know. All right, uh, cool. In 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 that aspect. All right, but we'll 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 thrash it out when we get to our angles. Um, yeah. So, what about this obstacle course? So the obstacle course begins in his cell, and essentially he has to. Uh, fight the pain of, of electrocution uh, to get into the grate, um, which is how he's supposed to enter the obstacle course. Now, luckily, at dinner time, he managed to secure a knife away, um, which he uses to kind of make a makeshift spear out of the chair in his cell. And he also managed to pocket his lighter as well. So going into this, he's already kind of Ramboing, John McClaning it already into the vents. <laughs> so... You know, Bond going to the vents, you know, is like reminding me of John McClane. I know what a, you know, like I know what a, t now I know what a TV dinner feels like. Uh, that whole aspect, you know, like it's a very, you know, like it was, um, it's, it's, it's escapism at his best. So, so he's going, he's, he's going through like the, uh, the, I guess the, the air intake pipe, like he's going through, through the through ventilation vents. And so he has to deal with how hot, hot they are, the temperature, the electrocution, all of that aspects. He find ways to adapt to that, um, and then of course, uh, oh, by the way, there's a part in the middle of the novel that they that I did want to mention was that there, Doctor No, while Bond before he gets to Crab Key, he also tries to take out Bond in several uh, one and one or two junctures, and one of these is he puts a centipede in his bed, and that was a pretty creepy scene overall. It was very creepy, very creepy, and it was very well done and well played, and. Uh, Definitely real, one, one, of the, one of the more realistic aspects, despite the fact of putting a centipede in the bed. Uh, apparently, anyways, though, apparently the centipede was completely ripped from a different, an earlier source that Fleming has since given credit for. I believe that was a Fu Manchu story, wasn't it? Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, I remember, I remember reading something about that on, uh, in my browsing. Anyway. Now, so, anyway. now if we call the film version of Dr. No, I don't know if I of comparison, but if you remember that in the bed scene, it wasn't a scent, it was in fact a tarantula that was put in his hotel room. 
was in Jamaica and it had the church of Ringers with us that uh, you know the artists couldn't dig up. I don't know, but uh, we don't. We do see the tarantulas, however, in the book. We see a swarm of them in the vents, and yeah. a very fantastic, fantastic, gross but awesome scene. Uh, Bond uses his lighter to scare them off, and then uses his spear to stab each and every one of them, and then to make them turn on their own on dying spiders, and then kills the, the 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 feeding spiders while they're feeding on on their dead comrades. Just full of blood and pulp and guts, and it was just a great, great kind of like '80s action moment there. Yeah, it was a, it was a cool scene. But you know what? The whole time I was thinking, right? We've just heard Doctor No talk about how Bond is going to be the first plot on his graph or his chart to see how far he gets through this this uh, obstacle course. Who's the poor bastard that has to go in there and replenish the spiders? <laughs> yeah, uh, Earl Curly there, hey? He got the shit end of the stick. He went with the one of the Drew Straws, I guess. Or, or, the, or the guys that have to <laughs> get to rework the uh, electrocuted grate. Yeah, that, that is true. But I guess, I guess then they're promised the lures of, of, of Honey Rider. So I, I, I suppose that, you know, yeah. what they, were, they, they had an incentive. Right, anyway, right, man, we're not getting through this. It's quick. Go for it. Keep going. I know. I'm doing my best. Doing my best. Oh, that's not so your fault. Essentially, <laughs> essentially, it leads through. Uh, so Bond manages to pass this obstacle. Um, and eventually he goes through a three fall into a into a cold inlet on the side of the of, of, of the island that's fenced off where as i mentioned earlier bond encounters a kraken a giant squid yeah and i did like the fact that fleming did not have him kill the creature he merely wounded its eye with his makeshift spear and then managed to get out of that scenario in a believable fashion in that scenario <laughs> yeah in the context of a ridiculous situation bond gets out realistically <laughs> yes yes okay right. and then of course he makes his way up to the quay where dr no said he would be and then proceeds to dump and uh and drown uh dr no in his own guano i love that you know it it, it totally it, it, t it totally gives new meaning to eat shit and die <laughs> yeah, absolutely that 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 should be, you know how like every Bond film now has, has like the word die, you know, in its title. They should call the remake of Dr. No, Eat Shit and Die. <laughs> yeah, that would be worth the price of admission. Just to Tom Hiddleston is James Bond in <laughs> Eat Shit and Die. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, oh, well. Um, 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 who should they get for the title, you know, for the title song for that one? That's a good question. Eminem? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'd watch it. I'd watch an Eminem Bond music video. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I probably would too. Leave it with me. I'll think of something. <laughs> Anyways, so Bond defeats, kills Doctor No, and disrupts the whole Guano uh, situation there. And he's and now he has to go find Honey, who, by the way, Doctor No has decided to strap tight and down on pegs, naked on the mountainside. For all these crabs to eat her alive. And they don't because she knows crabs better than he does. <laughs> uh, no context there whatsoever. But, no, uh, not at all. Not at all. But uh, yeah, she, so we find out that Honey doesn't need Bond's help whatsoever. She's an independent entity on her own. And she survived uh, based on her own feral lifestyle that, uh, <laughs> that, that Dr. No just couldn't, would definitely underestimate it. Yeah, you're not you're not going to throw Mowgli in a jungle and expect him to die, are you? Definitely not. A exactly. I think he underestimated the girl 100%. He didn't know anything of her origins or anything like that. So, 
No. That was his that was his fa- his failure. He took her as a pretty blonde, foolish girl, you know, America like tourist girl or, or some sort of local girl, you know. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't even interested in her when Bond was like, She's been here before, and he's like, Whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this is where I'm kind of starting to see now when I think about more and more is that uh Dr. No is definitely very uh single minded about certain things, you know, his um on his goals and his ambitions to get things done, but not focusing on the greater picture, I think is what really kind of did, did him in yeah. that of course, uh, yeah. pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds, tons and tons, I should say <laughs> bird shit of uh, bird shit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so bond. And so after uh, a daring escape and uh, taking out some of the primary thugs there, um, bond and honey managed to uh, board the moon, the marsh, I was going to say moon buggy, uh, the marsh buggy and uh, escape to their boat where they can where they sail back to Kingston and uh, the governor has a deal with the fallout um, but it's very hush hush and everyone gets promoted everyone gets proper mention and all that and uh, then Bond basically gets to spend some time with Honey that's it Honey time Honey time yeah well good so that's that's kind of the, yeah, that's the basic throw of the narrative and I uh, just put in some salient points there but uh, huh? now we can kind of you know get into it a bit more de- uh, detail any points you want to bring up at all or yeah I mean I mean I got a lot of stuff written down here at scribbled I'll get to some of it and I'll ignore some of the other stuff and I know I mean let's let's just let's just fly into some things here um, plot wise um, <clears throat> I, I found that the gambit at the beginning was very similar to Moonraker Strangway's death the motivating incident just like yes. Ta- just like Talon's death was in Moonraker, and in both cases, M is kind of meh, lukewarm about doing the investigation, but he says, "Yeah, go ahead and see what's going on. Something doesn't smell right, but I'm not really too bothered by this smell." Um, and but I did think it was interesting, and maybe I've already said this, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, but I did think it was kind of curious that M is is just kind of discontent at the beginning of this, and. There's not really a great explanation for it. Perhaps we were supposed to we're supposed to infer that he's upset or feeling a little responsible for for Bond's situation and his near death. Um, I mean, do you think that a bit a bit pre, a bit, pre, a bit, a bit pre- preoccupied by the promotion of love uh, uh, aftermath, perhaps? Yeah, maybe. Um, here's my question to you, and I guess implicit in this question is. Uh, a question for Ian Fleming and, and whether or not we're going to give him credit for this, but do you think that M suspects that there is more going on in Jamaica, but he just doesn't want to tell Bond? Uh, or do you just think he's shaking him off? Yeah, that's a good way to, to show it. I never really saw, I couldn't see that nuance in the writing. So No, neither did I really. I was probably giving him too much credit. Yeah, so, yeah I think that the post, whatever, that, that, that initial critic there, I think in that case I would be more on his line. But you know it's hard to say. I mean, you could confer, you could infer it that way, right? But yeah, uh, the difference. One of the differences, you know, between like uh, film and book is that in a in a book you got to kind of you got to kind of have those nuances visible between the lines. Whereas in a film, you know, you can include them in there if you want. If you and if people miss them, you can always argue that you miss those nuances. And oh, now I see it. But with a book, the nuance they're either they're there or they're not. And I didn't feel the nuance there at all. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, it's just me maybe wanting it and. Not getting it, perhaps. So <clears throat> that's fine. Uh, um, but before before Bond goes to Jamaica, uh, the term you're looking for is fan wanked. By the way, maybe some of it was. Yeah, I mean, I wanted there to be more than there was. Um, I'm not making excuses for it. Like I, don't, I, you know, you know, I'm easy about saying that this is just not a well written opening. 
Um, but definitely not. Anyway, uh, there's a couple of parts to the opening though. I, I I like the three blind mice killing Strangways. I thought that was cool. And that was a very well written scene. I did like the opening chapter of the book. Yeah. Uh, the description of uh, Kingston and the nightclubs at night and the cocktail hour and yeah. you know the, the their aristocracy doing what they're doing. Then you have the poor men from the other district, these chigros, you know, as they describe them. Yeah. Uh, one thing I learned from the film, Doctor No, and from the book is this whole other subculture in Jamaica outside of the Rastafarian, tr uh, you know, stuff and and the, and and the British colonial aspect was this whole Chinese, uh, this African. Chinese diaspora that's there, you know? Yeah, and the, Bond learns about that at the with the colonial secretary over lunch at Queen's, um, what is it, the Queen's Club? Queen's, uh, Queen's Club, yeah. yes. That's and that, right. that's good context, and I think that that's good context, especially for, as a travelogue, you want that stuff in there so you understand a little bit more, even though it's very tainted with racist comment and um, bias. But but regardless, we have to understand that when you're writing any crime novel, uh, any kind of story, and you're dealing with ethnic uh, criminality, you got to deal like if you're talking about organizations in uh, the eastern United States, you're talking about the mafia, you're talking about the Italian families. Yes. If you're talking about um, the, the Japanese mafia, you're talking about the Yakuza, you're talking about Bushido and the samurai society. If you're talking about the Tong, you're talking about Chinese slavers, right? Uh -huh. So it would make sense to get into the Chi girl aspect in Jamaica because it would be the Chinese or the half Chinese that Dr. No, and being half Chinese himself, um, they would feel more loyalty to Dr. No more so than any other mercenaries that he would hire. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's why he has all these eyes within the Chi girl society within Jamaica, his own criminal network, right? Because yes. we know that the Gleaner reporter, the freelance, Chung, uh, she herself is uh, half half Asian or Asian or, or completely Asian. So there is a connection to her and Dr. No through that as well. And so he has his network well placed. He and he's also got Miss Taro. Oh, yes, Miss Taro, absolutely. Um, right, well... Who was, to me, used way better in the film than she, she was. was in the book. Yeah, she was. That was a good development in the film. One of the rare places where, you know, that, that material was stretched for... for I actually that. think, that, and I'm saying this now, I enjoyed the film Doctor No more so than the than the book version. Interesting. That's cool. Um, I guess because I found it more like it seemed, it seemed like more of a story that Fleming would have wrote as opposed to what we got here. I, I guess that's my comparison. Yeah, now, it it feels more like it, the film feels more like an earlier Fleming novel. It does. It really, really does. Um, well, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and maybe by the time nineteen sixty one rolled around for filming, three years had passed, and Fleming, as a consultant, might have said, "You know what? That's a bit shit. <laughs> Leave that part out." Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if, if Cubby Broccoli was like, "So the Kraken, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ian, we got to talk to you about this. <laughs> we got to we got to talk about this giant squid thing." Um, yeah. Also, he was like, no, no, I want that squid in. The squid has to be in. But I don't know. He, I, I think he might, might have agreed for it and realized, yeah, I don't know what I was smoking or. Well, the film only has. <laughs> I have no idea. The film only had a budget of, uh, of a million dollars. So that's true. I mean, how are you going to get a crack in? And I mean, I, okay, we can we can get there when we talk about the equipment, I guess. But like, how do you go about getting a fucking crack in? I mean, how do you and and then and then keeping one in one particular part of your bay. Like yeah, like you can't. I, I guess they got to get. The, did they dug up the one from twenty thousand leagues under the sea? I have no idea. You know. I, I don't know, man. I don't know. But anyway, let okay, <laughs> forget it. We'll talk about that later. The Kraken is just too distracted. It's just too distracting in this regard. <laughs> yeah, it's like the big elephant in the room, right? Like we're gonna have to get to the Kraken. 
<laughs> you can't um, ignore it. <laughs> no, you, you can't fucking ignore it. Um, right. So there's something else, though, I got to say that pissed me off about this book. I didn't feel like there was a payoff at all with it. And that's how these new weapons, no. are, the new weapons by Major Boothroat are in, implemented at the beginning. Do you want to say the something? The Walter PPK. Yeah, yeah, the Walter PPK. The, here we have his introduction, you know, the most iconic weapon that Bond has ever used, you know, like, you know, that society is associated with Bond and he, and he ends up using a Smith & Wesson. Yeah, he chooses. That, yeah, really, that didn't really work at all. His Beretta is taken away from him because it's not as powerful or as reliable a gun, according to M and uh, Major Boothroyd. Yeah who's the ammunitions expert for the service, and he gets the Smith & Wesson revolver and he gets the Walter PPK, both of which he takes with him, but only the Smith & Wesson does he carry with him onto Crab, Cree, onto Crab Key. Rather. Um, and <clears throat> as things develop, the, the, the guns, like, there's about 10 pages of this whole, here's your new gun and here's why this is going, and Bond is just like a petulant child pissed off when his toy's taken away from him. And he's... Oh, yeah, that whole sequence? Yeah. I, I love that on the basis of the fact that, like, I honestly visualized a montage of Bond's memories with his Beretta. You know, like, you are the wind beneath my <laughs> wings or something like that. You know, like, he was saying goodbye to, like, an old lover, you know? Like, yeah. I hope and... wrote that passage was actually, I laughed, but I also loved it at the same time. Well, there because is... maybe a man like him would have a, ment- a deta- attraction or an attachment to something like that, as all, almost like a friend. I t- you know, we talk about soldiers. I mean, their guns were their friends, and they had to keep them clean and... and and so this could be him writing about something that maybe we're just not as on a mental level as Fleming are understanding, perhaps, or, or we're not as empathetic to. Maybe. I mean, I maybe under- he was trying Sorry. to get that across. Maybe right. I mean, I, I appreciate the idea, you know, that the gun is the extension of the penis and, and how it connects to your manhood and all that kind of – I mean, I do understand that. I read a lot of Hemingway, and but, but I, I don't – I don't think that – I guess what I'm saying is to, to, to take the book as it is, there's no payoff with that scene. In oh, the, no. There's, no there's literally no Chekhov's gun with no, that's, that's probably, that whatsoever. That's probably like Bond that, – maybe that's what pissed Bond off because Bond's got a chip on his shoulder about M. And when he shoots at the dragon, I think later – or at one point later on, um, close quarters, maybe it's with the crane operator. I can't remember when it is. But he wished that he had his Beretta and that he would – or when the Smith and Wesson, maybe, maybe when that failed him, he said he was going to let M know that uh, the Beretta wouldn't have failed him. Or like he was still kind of pissy about it, even after he fucking fought a Kraken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Did you know that there's a whole backstory behind Major Boothroyd? Um, are, are are you familiar with this? I may or may not be. Intimate what you mean. So okay, now Boothroyd, Major Boothroyd, as we know, is also. Q. Q, yeah. Now, the story of how Major Boothroyd came about was that someone wrote, uh, I think it was two Bond novels ago, or I think it was for Mushroom of Love, I'm not quite sure, but some guy named Boothroyd, who was a major in the army, wrote to Fleming about how... Oh, yes, 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 I do know that. Yep, I do. He just wrote... And I thought that was kind of like a fan service, kind of like an inclusion that he put in the book to put a nod to that person who wrote to him. Yeah, and he does that through the series. Yeah. And I have a funny feeling is that that whole scene was for that person alone. And so th- so that because the guy said, this is the right gun. Well, okay, well, I'm going to take Bond's main gun away. And we're going to give him these, this brand new fancy dancy gun. And the whole thing of the story, though, is that, the, is, that when, is that when he's on Crab Key, Bond 
the gun doesn't work. Nothing works. He only has his own instincts of survival to stay around. Yep. So the equipment that he uses is makeshift. He makes a knife into a spear. Yes, it is. He uses a lighter. He, he MacGyvers it, you know? Yeah, he does. Totally MacGyver it. And so you think then, if, I, if I'm going to understand what you're saying, do you think then that although he puts in the Walter PPK, because I read the letter you're referring to, this Booth Road guy who wrote the letter and said that, you know, Bond, a man like James Bond would not be using a Beretta. He'd be using something more like a PPK. Here's why, blah, blah, blah. Do you think then that Bond's petulance throughout the novel about the change of the weapon is Ian Fleming kind of saying, okay, you corrected me, but you're still a prick? <laughs> 100%. Yeah, that's cool. 100%, man. What a prick. You know what? It's like, it's like, it's like I said, it's, it's Dr. No or when Bond, when, when Ian Fleming uh, regressed into a 13-year-old pubescent boy. Uh, <laughs> Because we have basically Bond uh, petulant about his gun, and then you know he meets this Amazonian warrior woman, and then there's a giant squid, and there's obstacle courses from the labyrinth, like childhood stories, you know, like it's <laughs> there's yeah. definitely some sort of midlife crisis going on here. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of like Bond's adventures in Wonderland. Absolutely. Anyway, all uh, right. Let's let's, rabbit hole. Let, let, let's move on a little bit here. Um, I do wonder why the the Chigros, Why did they burn down? Like, if they're trying not to draw attention to themselves, why the hell would they burn down um, Strangway's base in Jamaica and Kingston? Or indeed, if M isn't stupid, which we may have thought he was. Why wouldn't he be asking the questions of, okay, so the guy left with the girl, but why would he burn down his headquarters? That's exactly it. Maybe he was trying, maybe they think he was trying to, to destroy the classified information so no one would get to it. Yeah, that, like, and, and so when he took off that, he wouldn't leave any, any loose ends that could compromise British intelligence. So he wanted to leave and fuck off, but he also didn't want to, you know, cause damage to his country, so he destroyed it. That was my kind of reading of it after I thought about it. But at the same time, it's kind of ambiguous as to what was the point of like it wasn't it wasn't one hundred percent filled in or explained right okay. yeah yeah but I, I, I agree though it's a slight weakness in the uh, mm. it, it, it doesn't hold waters at some point yeah in the setup um I, I do like the way that all of these guys sitting around M's desk and uh, even the colonial office in in Kingston they're they're talking about these you know the Audubon society these old women's societies stirring up trouble and you know, they all seem to have stacks of money, these old women. It just kind of made me think of like Paul Watson and um, the Sea Shepherds or IFAW, Pamela Anderson, <laughs> like all these yeah. people taking up the torch for like endangered species or something. Yeah, like Bridget Bardot, for example. Yeah. Um, what is it that uh, Rex Murphy called them? Cleavage scientists. Cleavage scientists, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, Speaking of cleavage, yeah. Uh... Yeah, speaking of cleavage, we're almost at the part where we meet Honey Rider, but not quite yet. Um, okay, we, we can talk about it in our angles, but I think we should just talk about it now. Um, Quarrel meets Bond at the um, at the airport um, because he has been kind of requested from Bond before he goes there. As you've already as you've already made the link to Live and Let Die. This guy Quarrel's a Cayman Islander living in Kingston who does a lot of good work with the CIA on, on time and um, uh, worked with Bond and Felix Leiter there. And now he's working with Bond exclusively. Bond asked for him. Bond got him. Quarrel in the novel, I really liked him. Oh, yeah. The camaraderie was definitely there. And uh, I like him a little to die, too. And I, yeah. I kind of like how uh, 
how you, you think this guy is your typical it's another trope i think that fleming kind of subverts much like he did making dr no much more interesting and less racist than fu manchu was like was quarrel he could have been an easy man friday you know but it didn't uh -huh. happen with this guy he, he was his own character his own person and you could tell that bond appreciated him for being his own person and not just being like you know a condescending kind of white man black man relationship yeah no i'm, I'm with you i agree wholeheartedly it's uh, it, it's meaningful. It's cool. Bond appreciates the things that Quarrel has that are more tactile, you know, and kind of transcend race or class. Like you know, an understanding of people. He has a really good handle on um, simple tasks like building and uh, communications and networks of um, who knows who and who helps who. And if you do this, you'll get that. Like he's got that sort of Karen Bay understanding of his environment. Absolutely. But he's also a little more <clears> – <throat> well, he's less rich and resourceful, but he's a little bit more equipped to do manual labor than Karen Bay. Yeah, a little bit – a little more equipped, yeah. And I would also say a little more uneducated though, a little bit in his own way. Oh, very much, um, yeah. su Very superstitious about things and uh, these, kind of, these kind of superstitious and these fears and stuff kind of make him – seem like very uh foolish at times and sometimes you think that you, you think that he's kind of being a man friday but the writing seems to kind of get past that for me so i was able to you uh -huh. know not see that at, at, at uh most of the time yeah and i mean quarrel's not without you know um what's the word i'm looking for without mistake or he he does miss some tricks that others might have picked up on. Like when he picks Bond up in Strangway's vehicle, that, that's a stupid move, and Bond wished that he hadn't done it because it immediately drew attention to him. But here's, yeah. what, here's what Fleming writes. Quarrel had been with Bond on his last adventure in Jamaica. He was an invaluable handyman with all the fine seaman's qualities of the Cayman Islander, and he was a passport into the lower strata of colored life which would otherwise be closed to Bond. Everybody loved him, and he was a splendid companion. Bond knew that Quarrel was vital if he was to get anywhere on the Strangway's case, whether it was a case or just a scandal. And so asking for Quarrel in advance, I mean, that's, that, that's the type of um, back story we're given. Uh, we get a little bit more than that, but he likes him. He trusts him, and he's worked with him before, and really maybe that's all we got to say. Yeah, pretty much. But I do like, I do like the... Um, the, the way that Bond trusts this Cayman Islander who, like you said, given the, given the racial um, expectations of the time, of the readers of the time, he could have just kind of gone away and found himself a meal and used him for work. But he asked Quarrel where he would recommend to eat, and Quarrel tells him about this bar or restaurant called The Joy Boat where all the good gossip and all the great food is and good music. It's a good local scene. And although it's not quite as exciting as The Boneyard, um, in Harlem. No, nothing is the same as the boneyard, my no, friend. Nothing is. But the, the joy boat is, and that does still, though, the joy boat, it still does kind of have some of those sexual puns there. Um, yes. It, it is a great scene. It's a really nice place. I like the, the meal that they have, you know, the gin tonics with full limes, broiled lobster, steak, um, native vegetables. Like, that's a bit of the foodie aspect coming through there. Uh, but I like that Bond trusts and enjoys Quarrel's company enough to want drinks with him as well as, you know, do this work for me. Yeah, yeah that's – I could have said it better myself. Right, okay. So, um, I mean, anything from the early stages you want to touch on or can we just kind of uh, – I just think we of... should jump I, – I, I think we should definitely um, get into the honey. Okay. Well, 
As you've already said in your plot summary, oh no, actually we can't talk about Honey yet. We got to talk about these two these two characters, the governor who's kind of an interim governor um, for Jamaica. He's in his early 60s. He's looking to retire. You said he's a bit of a douche. Um, and we've got the secretary, uh, uh, Plendel Smythe. Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. The governor is a douche. Basically, and, and this is what I, I kind of like this part of the story because it gives you that colonial context. At this time, Jamaica is close to not being a colony anymore. And so you can imagine this guy who's just an interim uh, paper pusher looking to maybe top up his retirement, um, uh, what do you call it, your uh, pension or whatever, you know, his packet and get out of there. He's not interested in this crab key thing. He just wants to brush it off. And he's really quite cold to Bond when Bond comes in. Here's just another guy. He calls him a young whippersnapper. And, uh, you know, there's there's a real contrast here between him and Plendel Smythe. Because Bond susses him out pretty quickly as kind of a a stumpy old uh, groat he's not going to get any help from. And he says, you know, I want to. I'd like to talk to the colonial secretary. And the governor's happy to brush him off. But I like that the governor comes back in, and I like his character because although he is a douche, and I think you're right there when you say that, I, I don't think that his role is is kind of unne- unnecessary. Uh, he, no, he is, I, 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 I don't think his role is either. Um, I kind of, you know, brushed by that whole, you know, everyone is happy at the end kind of thing, but. I did like his inclusion in the narrative, and it brought a bit more grounded realism to the story, you know, based on all that happened. Yeah, he's not a nice guy, but I think he's a nice character, and it it does go some distance, I think, to showing people who don't have an understanding of these these uh, colonies, these overseas colonies, of just maybe how lazily they were operated, um, and how kind of mundane some of it felt to the people in power. And also how people there could, 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 you know, could do what they want to, you know, behind the behind the back and behind everyone else's back you know and and set up you know this a resistance almost to the the society that they didn't even notice because they're just so like what's the word uh uh, almost anesthetized to what was going on there yeah yeah totally um and throughout their conversation the governor recognizes that bond isn't to be played over and that Maybe he should treat him a little bit more carefully, especially because he's talking about the Jamaican constabulary and, you know, getting other people involved if he's not going to get any help from them. So he's eventually pushed off to this guy, uh, Mr. Plydell uh, Smith, or Plydell yes. Smith, who is the colonial secretary. And immediately uh, Bond, Bond really takes to him. He says uh, Bond grinned at him. This was more like it. He had found an ally and an intelligent one at that. Um, he's also found a racist dick, but that's besides the point. Yeah, absolutely. And man, like I love that. I love the description of him. Like always trying to, he he was basically almost like one of those hipster types who were like, you know, I got <laughs> yeah yeah I got my pipe. I I have all the pieces for it. I'm going to show off how I use my pipe. I love using my pipe all the time. Every part, every dictation of my body and every movement of my body is controlled by how I use my pipe. Like he yeah. just loves his pipe. He loves his pipe. He doesn't know. He doesn't know anything about where his files are or what staff members he has. Um, and he he knows how to play tennis and he knows how to have a good lunch at the Queen's Club. Uh, yeah. He's a nice guy. And at the end, he does help by taking in Honey Rider, um, or he promises Bond that they'll kind of uh, he and his wife will take her, kind of like adopt her uh, socially, I guess, um, and look after her and make sure that she gets a job at the at some museum or some shit like that. Makes your nose. Yeah, well, no, Bond's going to do that in New York himself. That's right, that's right. Anyway, okay, so, yeah, Bond gets the background of what's going on in Crab Key, kind of, from these guys, these two colonial figures. One that's a 
you know, on his way out, ready for retirement, not interested. And the other one who, yeah, he's up for a good time by Jove. By Jove. Right. So th- then Bond and Quarrel make their plans to um, <clears throat> go out to Crab Key. And Quarrel isn't interested in doing this because he's superstitious, like a lot of Cayman Islanders and like a lot of people, I suppose, with rich, um, what, um, indigenous knowledge and tradition, right? I mean, they people are superstitious in a lot of places. Uh, and... I think that's I think that's kind of cool. It's nice to read that Quarrel isn't just he isn't just a easy to hand over, and I and I love that he forces well requests Bond to go in and get him a life insurance policy before he goes. Yeah, a bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah, total foreshadowing. But that's all. And you know what, Josh? That's kind of lazy writing too. Like that's not necessary, but it's. It's kind of Fleming's way of saying, "Okay, we're going to kill this character, but he'll his family will be okay. Don't worry." <laughs> I, I kind of guess. Urkin also also been because Fleming is very practical and most of the times about what his people do on missions and operations and stuff. He does have that procedural feel to him yeah, in that way. He does. So, so maybe it was just kind of just like he was just a, a, a detail that would be added in in missions like that, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. but regardless, if you have any idea of of if, of any kind of tropes and narrative, that is definitely a. Clear call yeah that's like someone on some series saying like um so you know when i get home you know i'll tell you all about it and you'll learn everything and then of course that person dies or something like that right yeah. so i mean yeah it's it's foreshadowing 100 it it's totally foreshadowing well bond goes back to um or sorry before crab key like you you, you uh you're talking about the the centipede um dr no has been collecting information on him and as you say he's trying to knock him off because he knows kind of what he's there for um, yeah, you've got Annabelle Chung who's taking pictures as a kind of a freelance for the Gleaner, but really she's employed by him. And you've got Miss Tarot who's destroying files, and you've got the three blind mice who are destroying all the service uh, personnel, like Strangways and uh, his girl or the secretary. I can't remember her name right now. It's uh, uh, something Blueberry or some shit like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, Mary True Blood. True Blood. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, and then Bond goes with all the plans kind of sorted. He goes back to his hotel, and yeah, that's when he discovers a poisoned fruit. And a couple pages later, he gets in the bed, and there's a big uh, centipede that crawls up him. Should I read a little bit of that section? Yeah, absolutely. It's spine-chilling in its, in its way. This is, as you've said, quite a good part of the book. Um, in the film, of course, they use a spider on a glass wind, uh, piece of glass that's really easily detected. But... The, the centipede, and I did some research into this, um, there's not a lot of venomous centipedes that will kill a man. There is one Vietnamese species that's particularly potent. There's obvious, uh, there are a number of centipedes that do uh, and uh, can harm humans, but there's not that many with lethal blows. So I don't know if this was just a scare tactic or maybe if there was a story in the, in the Caribbean at the time that Fleming was picking up on. Or what? Um, but yeah, regardless, a big centipede is put into his in his room. Uh, I won't read it all because it's quite long. It goes on for four or five pages, but I'll read a bit. Uh, <clears throat> something had stirred on his right ankle. Now it was moving up the inside of his shin. Bond could feel the hairs on his leg being parted. It was an insect of some sort, a very big one. It was long, five or six inches, as long as his hand. He could feel dozens of tiny feet lightly touching his skin. What was it? Then he heard something he had never heard before, the sound of the hair on his head rasping up on the pillow. Bond analyzed the noise. 
It couldn't be. It simply couldn't. Yes, his hair was standing on end. Bond could even feel the cool air reaching a scalp between the hairs. How extraordinary. How very extraordinary. He'd always thought it was a figure of speech, but why? What was happening to him? The thing on his leg moved. Suddenly, Bond realized that he was afraid, terrified. His instincts, even before they had communicated with his brain, had told his body that he had a centipede on him. Moving ahead a little bit. The animal was at the base of his jugular. Perhaps it was intrigued by the heavy pulse there. Christ, if he could only control the pumping of his blood. Damn you. Bond tried to communicate with the centipede. It's nothing. It's not dangerous, that pulse. It means you no harm. Get on, out into the fresh air. As if the beast had heard, it moved up on the column of the neck and into the stubble on Bond's chin. Now it was at the corner of his mouth, tickling madly. On it went, along the nose. Now he could feel its whole weight and length. Softly, Bond closed his eyes. Two by two, the pairs of feet moving alternately trampled across his right eyelid. When it got off his eye, should he take a chance and shake it off? Rely on its feet slipping in his sweat? No, for God's sake, the grip of the feet was endless. He might shake one lot off, but not the rest. So the thing then proceeds up into his hair, crawls around his hair a little bit, tugs at it a bit, and eventually it leaves onto the pillow, at which time the centipede came out from under. It started to snake swiftly away across the matting. Now Bond was uninterested. He looked around for something to kill it with. Slowly he went and picked up a shoe and came back. The danger was past. His mind was now wondering how the centipede had got into his bed. He lifted the shoe and slowly, almost carelessly, smashed it down. He heard the crack of the hard carapace. Bond lifted the shoe. The centipede was whipping from side to side in its agony. Five inches of grey-brown, shiny death. Bond hit it again. It burst open, yellowly. Bond dropped the shoe and ran for the bathroom and was violently sick. And there ends chapter six. So yeah, thank you for indulging me there. I read a little bit more maybe than I, I needed to, but oh, I thought it's... No. You carried it through to, to its uh, fruition. I thought, I thought it was interesting considering we're going to have a very similar scene with a kraken. Yes, a kraken in a short while at the end of the novel during its climax. And, you know, instead of yellow, we get black gunk that comes out of it but in both cases bond is piercing or destroying um a terrifying beast and don't forget the tarantulas too oh yes the tarantulas with their piercing red eyes yeah yeah so there's all kinds of uh all kinds of animals going on in here anyway crab key yeah it's a it's a 30 mile sail they get to crab key and then we meet honey rider you want to take it from here yeah honey rider i mean <laughs> the chapter is called the elegant venus when really it's more of the inelegant Venus, if anything. Um, yes, it's a little, as I little ironic. You know, there's the idea of her being the descendant of Cromwellian loyalists, uh, which is kind of really interesting. But it kind of makes sense in terms of the history of Jamaica and what Fleming knows about the island and stuff. So definitely but a mystique to her character. And I just want to say forthright that as ridiculous as her character kind of feels in, the con in certain contexts, I did like her as a character. Did you get that feeling? Did you like her as a character? I did. I found I found her really tough to score, though, in terms of the angle. I did, too. I did, too. I ended up ended up really actually liking her character and much more than I thought I would. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I didn't like the... I like the idea that in, in, throughout the novel, she does not need Bond's help whatsoever. No, she doesn't. And, in fact, Bond and, causes her more problems. And she's underestimated by... Everybody. Yeah, and at the end, he finds her just kind of walking around the lair looking for an exit in a boiler suit because she's figured everything out. 
Yeah, exactly. She's going to kill Dr. No herself. <laughs> she was just going to go kill him. Um, look, I know I said over to you, but I got to interrupt you for a minute. When he first sees her right on the beach, and as yes. you say, he's described as... I'm getting that, I was going to get to that, but if you no, want no, to go, go ahead. from there... You, you go ahead, and I'll chip in after you do that. Well, I was reading about um, one of Fleming's friends talking about how uh, Honey Ryder is a character and describing her. And one of the famous descriptions of her, I mean, this is the description of her and, you know, put on the whatever kind of, we'll just, you know, I'll outright read it out to you just in terms of, uh, I'm afraid I don't have like a, I don't know, like Colin Firth kind of voice from reading this out. So this is not meant to be titillated in any way. Okay. Um, okay. So essentially, um, Bond is on Crab Key and then he hears some singing uh, from the beach. And then, of course, we have that Botticellian emergence of honey rider from the sea i mean everyone's seeing dr no we know the scene ursula andrews coming out of the water with her bathing suit with with her bikini and her sword and her knife belt right yep difference one of the main differences well this is one of the main differences it was a naked girl with her back to him she was not quite naked she wore a broad leather belt around her waist with a hunting knife and a leather sheath at her right hip the belt made her nakedness extraordinarily erotic Really, thank you, Mister. <laughs> Thanks. He for stood not more than five yards away yep. on on the on the timeline, looking down at something in her hand. She stood in the classical relaxed pose of the nude, all the weight on the right leg and the left leg, the left knee bent and turning slightly inwards, the head to one side as she examined the things in her hand. It was a beautiful back. The skin was very light, uniform, cafe au lait, with the sheen of dull satin. The the gentle curve of the backbone was deeply indented, suggesting more powerful muscle than is usual in a woman, and the behind was almost as firm and rounded as a boy's. The leg were straight and power beautiful, and no pinkness showed under the slightly lifted left heel. She was not a colored girl, really. (laughs) (laughs) It goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Two things here, two things, right, that I pick up from that. And both of them are independent clauses. She was not (laughs) a colored girl, which means you're allowed to be attracted. And the belt made her nakedness extraordinarily erotic. Okay, thanks for all of the the young male readers that don't already have chubbies in their pants. <laughs> you don't need to tell me that. That's like, that's superfluous. <laughs> and one of them is just downright racist. Like, this is not a colored girl, so it's okay to feel sexy better. Yeah. What do you think with that comment about, like, a uh, description of her buttocks as, like, a boy's? Like, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I think. And I, I've underlined it. It's the second straight Bond girl if you remember, because Tatiana was described as an ice skater with a very muscular behind, more like a man's. It's the second, yes. straight, second straight girl with a male athletic butt. I think it's fucking Fleming's public school homoeroticism in there somewhere. <laughs> Possibly. I also think, too, that I think when, I, when he described it, I'm not talking about the state of, you know, the female posterior in culture nowadays, but back then... The behinds of women's were a lot more. It was fashionable for them to be much more rounder, you know, um, softer. And this is a very kind of athletic. I think this is not what we're thinking as a boy's butt. I think this is more of a. Can't believe we're talking about this, but more like a supermodel kind of posterior, if you know what I mean. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of if you look at a lot of the fashion models, a lot of the women nowadays, you know, I mean, I, I know that like big butts are in now apparently, but back like in the fashion model eras of like the '90s and the 2000s, like the athletic kind of uh, behind was 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 in, was in, was in vogue was in vogue and kind of still is in many ways. Mm. So 
maybe Fleming just kind of saw this turn in society of going from um, from the from the soft kind of like full full body suit um, bathing suits to the much more athletic supermodel types that you see emerging in the 60s with like with Lauren Hutton and with Ursula Andress for example okay maybe yeah maybe maybe I, I'm, I'm just saying and maybe the description that he gave was an honest kind of description where like we're thinking of, of you know living with men in a boarding school like Bond did as well because we know he went to Eton in some capacity yeah or or he, he must have given it given the kind of person he is he must have been in some sort of uh, boys' school at some point, right? Some at some point, we've assumed that. Yeah. That that was the best comparison that he could make of it, you know. Maybe. And um, you know what? Even though people can be completely straight, uh, homoeroticism, I think it, it's prevalent in all aspects of, of our lives in many ways. So. Well, of course it is. Yeah. Just just look at the uh, Marvel universe, right? For examples. Yes, absolutely. Right, well, I all mean, those, all, all those types. Do you want do you want to say anything about uh, about um, how heavily sexualized Honey Rider is? I mean, very obviously, very blatantly, she's the most sexualized of any of the Bond girls, even though she's very, very inexperienced. And so that naivety makes her even more childlike. And that's yes. kind of creepy for me that, um, you know, that we've got a 20 year old woman. So she's a woman, but she's and she's painted in such sexualized uh, decorum and description by Fleming. But she is herself very inexperienced. Her only sexual experience is rape. And again, this is the second Bond girl that we've seen in, in Fleming series that has a backstory of rape. And I was talking to Sarah about it. And, uh, you know, Sarah rolls her eyes at so much of this shit when I'm telling her about our reading and our research. And she's like, she's like, that's just such lazy writing for a woman. And I said, well, it certainly is for a female character given today's standards. But, you know, Fleming didn't really give a shit about women. I, I've said that before. And I feel like, again, we're seeing this. Like, yeah, she might be strong in some ways, but even the strong women have to cower to the magic penis. And I feel like I'm still waiting for, Tiffany Case was the closest, a Bond girl that I can really respect. Definitely maybe true. maybe I'm not going to get one. Maybe I'm not going to get one here. And in that, sake, in, 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 for, for, in that sense, from a modern perspective, the films will better the books because these are historical documents and so i'm not nailing fleming for this but i do kind of want like I, I seem to enjoy the stories more when there's a woman in them that is really standout in some way like rosa Klebb was an interesting woman but he had to make her a beastly woman a beastly asexual creature before she could be respected and i'm, I'm yet to find a sexualized character that i can respect as a individual and an independent woman you think maybe we got it here Oh, that's definitely a conflict. I think Fleming appreciates, I got from the impression that Fleming appreciates women in his own way. And I think deep down he might, you know, have a lot of maternal issues. I, I really feel that's in there and I, I feel that, but I don't know. Like, again, I'm looking at it from like a person has seen this, how this was written back then. So it's, it's hard to judge, you know, based on our own modern mores on this things where stuff like this would be absolutely scandalous, you know, like what a sexist character and all this kind of stuff. Right. So it's it causes a lot of conflict like thinking about you know is this a progressive thing or is this you know like just absolutely ridiculous where we have basically uh sh like sheena of the jungle here you know we don't have to answer the question now either we don't have to answer the question maybe at the end no. of the series we'll see how the women develop but so far yeah um, so far you know i i'd like to find a little more strength in these women to give credit to fleming yes. as a as a you know Good writer, but I find every time 
every time that I think he's giving like some really credible agency to some of his female characters, all he does, all, but he then contradicts it so quickly. Yeah, he takes um, it. He takes it away through a gesture or through you know uh, an an empty need for something, right? I found the most compelling character so far. I can't believe I'm saying this. Is because I hate the the film version of her is Tiffany Case. And yeah. Yeah. Well, we 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 did give her really good marks, and we might give Honey Rider good marks too. Um, I'd like to play the song, Josh, that um, I found, of course, which is the Marianne song that you've already um, you've already mentioned. But uh, yeah, Bond sees her whistling this tune, a little calypso tune, and this is it. Have a bamboo hut and brandy in the tea. Leave your fat old mama home, she never will say yes. If mama don't know now, she can guess my my yes. All day, all night, Mary Ann, down by the seaside, sifting sand. Why, even little children love Mary Ann. When she walks along the shore, people pause to greet. White birds fly around her, little fish come to her feet. So there's a nice little melody there that you can picture Honey Rider whistling on the beach. Absolutely. Um, very eroticized song too. Oh yeah, very much. Um, so that that's kind of what Bond hears, and I like I like these little bits of the novels where Fleming can bring in whether it's food or whether it's music or whether it's you know something cultural, and maybe that's a little bit of the um, admiration he has for Jamaica. I I don't know. I mean I, I'm just saying I, I like these moments where we get a little bit of reality in these very unrealistic or this being a very unrealistic story. Uh, absolutely. But going back to Honey Rider, though, I guess we'll have to we'll, we'll get we'll get into her where we go to the angle, I think, because I think we can really discuss her as like the girl of the story. So, yeah, we can. Um, um, we can. We're but getting... basically, we have this feral woman child, basically, um, that Bond, you know, befriends. And, you know, because of his presence there, he puts her in danger as well. And he feels bad about that. I always got a feeling that Bond has almost like this. <laughs> I, no, I'm not saying he's a, kind of like Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. He's trying to make Audrey Hepburn into a lady, you know? Yeah. He wants to fix her. He wants to improve her, you know? But at the same time, he likes her broken nose. He finds that characteristic about her. And this is really interesting, I think, in general, about the Bond women so far in the novels, is that there's always some, like, they're always described as beautiful, but there's always this fundamental flaw in them, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, there's... You know, there's there's a Tatiana with her not, per, with her very kind of flat bottom, and then there's Honey with her broken nose. There's the damaged goods that is Honey Rider, and also um, Tiff Tiffany Case. Even though damaged goods isn't really a fair thing, because I don't want to imply that you know they're any less of of a person because of their of their situations. Um, but in order for those situations to find them. But I'm just giving the point here of, of, a, of a certain pattern that I'm seeing, you know, with the description of women in the story. Yeah. Yeah. He, well, I think it's a neat character. I mean, no women. I, like, like that he's done that. I mean, like any man, no woman is perfect. Right. And, 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 you know, Bond has a scar on his cheek and whatnot. And, uh, 
I, there are flaws to him as well in, into how he fails and does missions incorrectly sometimes and whatnot. So, you know, maybe, you know, I should be more fair here. And Fleming is just showing that women and men can be imperfect as well. Yes. And I do like that. That's a character flaw that she carries well. But um, and I don't blame her, nor do I think it's um, like I think most women and most men who had a broken nose but had no facility to improve themselves for it would want to find that way of fixing their appearance. Especially so, for someone like her who lived in the cellar of her family's old house, you know, and yeah, plus that's that's a reminder. It's a constant reminder to her of her abuse and her attack. And so it's kind of like that would be the monkey off her back, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, OK, so let's let's um, I mean, uh, we got a bit of time left, but I'd like to speed things up if we could and maybe get into Dr. Knowles layer when they're collected. But before that, we see some resourcefulness on the part of Quarrel. And Anne Honeyrider, who shows the trick with the bamboo shoots to breathe underwater when Dr. No's men are there in the mangrove swamp looking after her. And we see uh, Bond kills someone there as well, doesn't he? He kills one of the guards. It comes back upstream. And we get some cold blood killing. Not the last we're going to see in the story. Um, but it's kind of necessary. So he uses his license quite well there. And then... I like the detail of him using, like, by pressing the muzzle right to the chest, it actually muffles the blast. Yeah, it was good detail. And we get good detail again later on, too. So this is where maybe Fleming is exposing a little bit more of his military knowledge. And, you know, his, well, I guess anybody could have found that information out. But, you know, the proper ways to, to kill and to maim. And then the dragon shows up and the dragon kills our buddy Quarrel. Yes, that was a very sad scene and you really felt Bond's um, pain, you know, in that moment when that happened and whatnot. And the visualization that Fleming uh, brought to Quarrel's body was just so like almost describing like, you know, the victims of like uh, of, of a nuclear holocaust or something, you know, just like very apocalyptic, uh, terrible incineration, you know? Yeah. And that incineration doesn't come, though, before... Uh, Bond and Honey start their flirting, which happens at night. And, you know, as they're, they're down on the ground uh, of this half-eroded camp from the Audubon Society. Um, they have a little flirtatious night. And I like Bond here. I like him in these moments where he's talking to her and trying to figure out whether he's lustily attracted to her or he wants to be more protective of her, like you said. He's trying to be a, a Dr. Doolittle or if he's trying to be a James Bond seducer. You know, I like these moments where he's trying to figure out what what line he has to cross, right? I think Fleming made it clear. I think this story kind of stays a slightly out of the creepy scenario because the fact that he wants to improve her, he wants to help her. But then again, this is like a 20-something beautiful young woman. And, you know, the blood is going, into, I think, in both directions here. <laughs> and he's trying to kind of control the flow, so to speak. Yeah, he's, he's trying to... Um, he's trying to he wants to help her. Yeah. He, he, he likes her. He wants to help her out, you know? And a lot of Bond... Bond is definitely a chivalrous... He comes off... I think he believes himself as a chivalrous person. And this really... You really feel that in this moment here, that he feels himself this way. Uh -huh. Now, some of the actions that he takes aren't necessarily chivalrous in their own way due to the outcome. Yeah. But at the same time, he sees himself as this way. And I think Fleming uh, shows that in the writing. And perhaps Fleming is trying with a character like Honey Rider who um, insists that Bond gives her slave time and promises a repay for all the things that she's helping him with in surviving the mangrove swamp and whatnot. Maybe maybe Fleming thinks that he's writing a, a very liberal character at the time. We're only a couple of years away from bra burning and the start of the revolution, the sexual revolution. I mean, let's give – let maybe, well, I don't know we're giving him too much credit because at the same time – 
yes, of course, we're giving him too much credit in this particular um, <laughs> yeah. platitude. But I do think that in his own misogynistic way, maybe Fleming is trying to give her some strength and let her be sexually liberated without consequence. I can totally see, honestly, like... Uh... I'm not saying, you know, that Dr. No, as I mentioned to you at Candlely before, would be on Emma Watson's uh, he for she book reader list or whatever. But I can see a lot of women like that kind of actually look reading this book and saying, Honey Ryder's awesome. She kicks ass. She takes yeah. care of herself. Yeah. You know, she's control of her sexuality and she takes his man and she knows that he wants him. And I didn't have got any 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 idea that Bond was manipulating her in any way. Like no. she is there for him. And now the idea of Fleming writing this character is ridiculous in itself, but the execution of it I found believable. Is that is that understanding? Yes, I do totally get that, and uh, I think you're right. She's not manipulated by Bond, um, and I think he respects her a little bit because of what she's been through, and that is kind of a trope too. But whatever, I think that he. I think he, he likes her and he doesn't want to feel like he's taking advantage of her. And, and she is the one who's always asking for it. And so, you know, whatever. Maybe he just – he gives her the slave hours at the end of the novel though. Or, you know. Yes. But her, her, And her whole practicality and, and matter-of-factness of that yeah, as well, I mean, you know. Like, like he also – when he sees both of them – together he doesn't picture them as like they're both animals and i think he and the whole last half of the novel is so primal because it's bond using his resources to survive like an animal in many yeah. ways right like yeah. a caveman almost with a spear and all that and well and surviving you know just survival of the fittest and i think fleming was kind of tarzaning bond as well and not just honey rider she does emasculate him in a number of different ways not just through the resourcefulness but you'll notice that they've both been through an ordeal but repeatedly especially during dinner and after the drugging and and when he picks her up off the rocks where the crabs are like he just describes her as looking as though you know she hadn't brushed her hair today or something and what's really noticeable well it was noticeable for me is that on their way back she does most of the sailing i, mean, I know i know he just like collapses and and you can't really blame the guy like collapsing you know because <laughs> I, honestly i just love the part where like they encounter each other after he kills dr no and and she's like the crabs Dr. No didn't even know that they don't even eat like flesh. You know, there must be something wrong with that other girl. She must have had some wound or something that made her eat her. Yeah, and you right. know what? I liked them. They were friendly. They were great, great, <laughs> good great, company. Great company. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, look, man, let's, um, let's get into what well, we, we've talked about the dinner, this incredible, um, like after bond and honey rider are, um, accepted. Well, they're collected, aren't they? After the death of coral, the dragon collects them, brings them into the, uh, the layer, which as you've already said, has the front of this health spa slash sanatorium, and they are get brought to their rooms, which are really cushed out and luxurious. They have all kinds of brand name soaps and bath salts, and they get themselves relaxed and they have a lovely dinner. And of course, they're drugged so that they'll be strengthened or Bond will be strengthened for his uh, obstacle course, which he learns that he's going to be part of. And they have their dinner and they're brought down to, doc to meet Dr. No, this um, ex Chinese mobster slash uh, gangster slash uh, uh, embezzler and. We learn all kinds of interesting things about him. You say that you really, really, really liked his character. Um, I'm, I'm quite eager to get into our angles, but we need to talk about Dr. No. We got to talk about his lair and we got to talk about the fucking Kraken. So why don't you say a few words about Dr. No and, uh, and kind of um, you know, lead us into the denouement? Right. So we have Dr. No, this bastard of a German Methodist missionary and a Chinese woman. I think she was a maid or something like that in Peking. And how, because, 
you know, of his ba- of his being a half breed or whatever, he wasn't. He ended up in a, on the bad side of the river, so to speak, and he had got a, got caught up into the Chinese mafia via Tong family. And within this organization, you know, he did many nefarious things, and he ended up actually embezzling from that organization um, when he, when 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 he got into the Tong powers in New York, where there was a big mob a war between them in, between the families of the Tongs in the late twenties, and we learn that in prison for his embezzlement, they cut off his hands and then shot him in the heart and left him for dead. So they thought. So they thought, um, because he has a condition that that's a well-known medical condition where the heart is on the right side of the body of the, uh, thorax, uh, as opposed to the, uh, left side. And so they basically shot into, I guess, like between the lungs, I suppose. And he survived his ordeal. And so then he came back he decided to go to Milwaukee where there was no Chinaman and he became a doctor, learned medicine, and then with the money that he embezzled and a few stamps, a self-made man, so to speak, he basically set up his private enclave on Crab Key in Jamaica and used this guano mine as a way to obtain assets. And we learned from him in this conversation with Bon at dinner time that the whole idea of, of having power is through, through privatization. Um, it's through basically controlling your own resources and building yourself up. And then isolating yourself and then controlling the factors around you is what really gives you power because you have no more outside influences. So there were some really interesting philosophical discussions I, I kind of found with the nature of power, um, for, you know, that, that, that they brought up. And I just found that, like, beyond the Fu Manchu reach, there, there are motivations to Dr. No, you know, being uh, to what he ended up to what he was becoming. I mean, I guess they're not, I guess, to, you know, subjectively, are they interesting motivations? I don't know. I just found his backstory really exciting and interesting. Um, and uh, I think Fleming executed that well. And I think the way that Dr. No is, is based on his on how he was brought up in the world. And it explains his character. It makes him a bit more three-dimensional for me. He really captured the idea of someone completely who's a psychopath and how they have to have a mask of human behavior over them in order to um, act in society. You know what I mean? I do. And we we'll talked about that with, with Dr. Sorry? I said, I do know what you mean. And Dr. No does, uh, you know... He acknowledges the fact that, yes, that's just what I am. I am a maniac. All great people are all powerful men are maniacs because, you know, they, they don't have blinders on that kind of stop them from seeing or being distracted by other things. And even though he underestimates Bond in the end, you know, given his, you know, his, his exit from the narrative, there is one thing I like about Dr. No is that he had an answer for every one of Bond's provocations. You know, Bond says, this is only, that is only the illusion of power, Dr. No. Any man with a loaded revolver has the power of life and death over his neighbor. Mm. Other people beside you have murdered in secret and got away with it. In the end, they generally get their deserts. A greater power than they possess is exerted upon them by the community. That will happen to you, Dr. No. I tell you, your search for power is an illusion because power itself is an illusion. Dr. No said equably, so is beauty, Mr. Bond. So is art. So is money. So is death, and so probably is life. These concepts are relative. Your play upon words does not shake me. I know philosophy, I know ethics, and I know logic better than you do, I dare say. But let us move away from the sterile debate. Let us return to where I began with my mania for power, or if you wish it, for the illusion of power. And please, Mr. Bond, again the extra crease and the fixed smile, please do not imagine that a half an hour's conversation with you will alter the pattern of my life. Interest yourself rather in the history of my pursuit. Let us put it of an illusion. 
Mm. I kind of like that, how, like, so what you're supposed to tell me right now as a hero, you're supposed to convince me, you know, that I'm making this mistake. And yeah, you think right. based it's on true. the pattern of my life that a one half hour conversation with you is going to challenge everything I'm supposed to do? Like, are you some sort of, like, mm-hmm. G- superhero Jesus that's come here to <laughs> convert me? Yeah. No, I, I, like, you know? I, like, I like what you're pulling out of that because it, it totally disarms Bond. And for the next 15 pages, he knows he's beaten and he's just waiting for his death. But yes, the only there's... thing... The only thing that Bond reckons Dr. No underestimates is the will to survive. And that's really the only thing that Bond's got. It's the only, what does he call it? A two of clubs up his sleeve, right? Two of clubs up his sleeve. That's right. It's the instinct to survive that Dr. No overestimates because he does everything he can to control his scenario, to control his operations, to control all the people around him. And he thinks that by using fear and scaring people with his logic and his control, that people will just submit and accept their fate and who they are in this world. And Bond is the antithesis of that. Yeah, yeah, and Bond, and Bond describes him in really interesting terms, or Fleming does. Fleming describes Bond's impressions of him as like a large venomous silkworm that just kind of glides. There's no sense of a foot there stepping on the carpet. He just kind of moves around. Silkworm is kind of a racist. Uh, it is, yes, and all of these connotations are definitely there. But um, after their dinner, uh, <clears throat> or we should say maybe just a quick shout out to one of the most ingenious pieces of location setting we've got. Uh, Dr. No has a massive glass wall. One of these walls in the 60-foot room is thick glass that looks out not into a fish tank but into the ocean itself because we're told that the glass wall was put into the mountain and then divers chiseled away the rock until they met it. And that produced this incredible wall to the kind of like an observatory wall window slash whatever into this incredible banquet room. Yeah, that that was quite quite astonishing. And I got, I'm, I'm actually surprised, you know, that no one noticed it, like, where the commissioning of, of that being done on, on that island, and no one, you know... I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know, I, I guess, like... It's possible. It's, hard to say. It's, it's possible, very possible. It's, well, no, what was it that Fleming says? It's, uh, it's not, it's beyond the probable, but not the possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. That, that explains this, that, that explains the majority of this book. Yeah. Except, of course, for our end of the optical course. <laughs> of course, the Kraken. Yeah, look. Let, but in, instead of just ripping the piss out of it, let's um, let's actually look for uh, a couple of moments from the fight. Okay, um, there's there's not really one that we need to pick, but let's just have a look. Like throughout the obstacle course, Bond keeps asking these rhetorical questions, and we as readers keep seeing them. Like, would this be Doctor No's killing ground? What's at the end of the tunnel? And it turns out there's a big friggin' drop about a hundred feet. And if Bond hadn't uh, instinctively remembered to put his fists up in front of him, then his head would have crushed against the break of water. But he, he manages to survive the dive and almost drowns. But as he pulls himself up to this um, this sort of lifeline, which is a jetty into the water, kind of, well, kind of a jetty, it's just rock and fence, he realizes that, okay, he's onto this big gate. And finally, there's something there. And it's a kraken. We don't know it's a kraken at first, but... It's. Uh, I mean, do you, do you want to go into this, or do you, are you happy for me just to read a little bit? Yeah, you should, you, I, I did the chapter there on the Doctor No, so you the passage on Doctor No, so uh, yeah, just go into the to the Kraken. Okay, fine. So he's fallen into the water. Um, basically, the anus of the uh, the obstacle course has dropped him into this the ocean. The terminus. Yep. yep. 
Uh, right, so Bond's in the water. Below him, the water quivered. Something was stirring in the depths, something huge. A great length of luminescent grayness showed, poised far down in the darkness. Something snaked up from it, a whiplash as thick as Bond's arm. The tip of the thong was swollen to a narrow oval with regular bud-like markings. It swirled through the water where before the fish had been was withdrawn. Now there was nothing but the huge gray shadow. What was it doing? What was it? Was it tasting the blood? As if in answer, two eyes as big as football slowly swam up and into Bond's vision. They stopped 20 feet below his own and stared up through the quiet water at his face. Bond's skin crawled on his back. Softly, wearily, his mouth uttered one bitter four-letter word. So this was the last surprise of Dr. No. The There's end a lot of F-words in this book, just as a general There are a lot, of F, a lot of F-bombs. Bond stared down, half-hypnotized, into the wavering pools of eye far below. So this was the giant squid, the mythical kraken that could pull ships beneath the waves, the 50-foot-long monster that battled with whales. Anyway, it goes on and on, and Bond finds a way to kill it by taking that makeshift spear from the obstacle course that he had and driving it into his eyeball until a bunch of black ink flies out, and it maims the squid. It disappears back into the abyss, but... Bond somehow manages to survive that and the great power of its sucking hold, which kind of uh, strangulates his chest a little bit and leaves these. Yeah, he's read the red sucker marks. So, hey, Bond gets out and then he sees uh, Dr. No like 30 feet from this fucking giant squid. There's Dr. No just kind of hanging out. Not necessarily, no, no, because he he followed the path up the, up the cliff way. Yeah, where the where the workers came down around the corner, and then around the corners where the ships were uh, were loading the guano. So he takes the path up. Then from where Bond is, is stationed there, it's like about thirty feet to the crane, and Doctor No is further down, of course, the jetty from yeah. there. But but Fleming still. justifies this, of course, by telling what Doctor No is saying when when he basically matter factly, you know, indicates Bond's fate. He says, "I'm going to be on the quay tomorrow, so you will have your obstacle course, and she'll be eaten alive by crabs." And I'll have to be on the quay tomorrow so that I can observe <laughs> observe the, the, the guano. Yeah, that's, I'm just going to be looking. Like, what a mundane thing to watch, just a bunch of shit being loaded into a tanker. But I Master guess... of his domain, surveying his territory, his, his, his empire. Yeah, I mean, we're skipping over a lot of nice description. There is some nice description when Bond reflects on, the, you know, the quest for power and reflecting on also the, the body's ability to survive. Um, but... By the time he fights this and defeats, at least for his sake, this giant squid, I mean, there's nothing left of his body. Um, and it's it's really quite ridiculous the way he finds his way off this this island. Um, they... However, I do like the description of him um, immediately after the attack with the squid and how like he's just totally about to give up and just, you know, just like just lie down regardless. And, uh, you know, this is the, this is the, this part is really great. It's like, you know. On an instinct, he felt his pulse. It was slow but regular. The steady thump of life revived his spirits. What the hell was he worrying about? He was alive. The wounds and bruises on his body were nothing. Absolutely nothing. They looked ugly, but nothing was broken. Inside the torn envelope, the machine was quietly, solidly ticking over. Superficial cuts and abrasions. Bloody memories, deathly exhaustion. These were hurts at an accident reward would sneer at. Get on, you bastard. Get moving. Clean yourself and wake up. Count your blessings. Think of the girl. Think of the man you've somehow got to find and kill. Hang on to life like you've hung under the knife between your teeth. Stop being sorry for yourself. To hell with what happened just now. Get down into the water and wash. That's what I would say if, you know, if I had to go on after I fought a Kraken. It is, it's a little bit, uh, well, it's very stoic and it, you know, it, it's a hero shit, isn't it? It's a John McClane, like you were saying earlier. Yeah. 
and there are some, and he does swear like John McClane in this one too. You know, there's a, there's a lot of swearing. <laughs> anyway, so Bond and Honey commandeer after a couple more kills in cold blood. Uh, one through the head, three kills, I think, isn't it? Uh, one in the head, one in the chest, and one somewhere else. It kills uh, three of these Chigro... Um, who, who we assume were the three assassins that yeah. killed Strangways at the beginning. Well, that's what Bond says to himself, so as to appease his conscience. <laughs> yes, so these, these guys here who are probably just like these guards being paid. I don't even know if they... Well, they were talking about you know doing something with a girl, so, I, so they're justified for death anyways, so... <laughs> justified. They go away, and they get this, uh, the dragon, and they steal some guns, and then they just take off, and they manage to get down to the end of Crab Key. Uh, and because Dr. No's dead, Bond rightly assumes that all of these guys will not come after him much beyond uh, the Doberman Pinchers, who he shoots up, and that was kind of a chaotic scene as well. He shoots up the, the, the dogs that are chasing him. Yeah, um, I, I could definitely, I, I know some people who would, uh, reading this book, would definitely be squeamish about that part, that, that, that scene. Yeah, that that's probably though, um, like his getting back at the Audubon Society, like the the grannies who just kind of have all this money collecting for noble causes. Exactly. So we'll just shoot, shoot a bunch the SPCA. Of we'll get the SPCA people people off too. Um, yeah. So Bond does that, and then uh, he lets Honey Rider go all the way back to Kingston. Then the governor and the colonial secretary get involved, and they decide, along with the uh, the navy, to go clean up Crab Key properly. And uh, Bond convinces him that that should be done. And then he drives back to his home where Honey tells him that he's going to be coming to her home tonight instead for dinner and lots of sex slave games. <laughs> and yep. thus ends the novel um, with him going into her kind of um, earthen um, shithole with a double sleeping bag. It feels like STD central to me. I don't know, but... Anyway, he... it feels like I find her character some point like there's almost like she's like a Dickensian character, like this yeah. female Oliver Twist child woman who like lives in in the, in the basement of some like old house or whatever, you know, and her own her own family glory lost, you know, something you would read like in Bleak House or something like that, or it, she has this perfectly ornate like uh, cigar box that she lives in is, is how Bond describes it. And she has like all the family uh, silver out and all this kind of stuff. So a relic of the past, and she survives. She's tenacious. She's very wafy in that way. Yeah. I don't, there's something very Dickensian about her character. I can and see I think that. It, I, I think it almost. I'm, I guess I'm going into my angle here, but I'm definitely defending her as a character in the sense of how, how I guess in concept how ridiculous she is. Yeah. And, yeah. and in fact, kind of how brilliantly she was executed. I guess would be the, would be the way to describe it. Well, she's a ridiculous character in a ridiculous context, and that kind of helps to ground her, doesn't it? It does. It really does, actually. Okay, well, here we are. We've reached the end of the book. Love at last. Um, let's get on to our angles. So, angles, Josh. This, of course, our scoring index, starting with A, adversaries, allies. You want to take it off? All right. So, I mentioned my appreciation of Dr. No as a villain. I found it was really kind of exciting, and I liked his philosophical way of looking at the world, and I thought he was a bit more fleshed out as some other maniacs, like, like comparison to Drax, who was more revenge-minded. This guy had a calm kind of understanding what he wanted to do and what he was doing. Um, he was flawed in his own way because he overestimated people and people were willingness to survive, which is kind of you know ironic considering you know how he managed to survive his scenario. You know, 
uh, that that he was in the man in the man that was into what he was. So I found him, I, I found his motivations believable, and I found his background colorful enough to support those motivations. And I just found him a really chilling villain overall. And I do like the fact that this kind of this highbrow villain mastermind is also basically drowned in in, in bird crap, ironically as well. You know, yep. so <laughs> um, I, I found him a great villain. Um, it's, 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 he has, and he also has a very efficient network of spies. Um, all of the Chigros that worked for him, Miss um, Taro. Uh, you have the three blind mice assassins. He has very efficient operations. So I found the adversaries were pretty um, menacing overall in this story, and okay. and there was there, there was nothing pretty about them. They were professionals in their own way, you know, like. They weren't a majority of them weren't idiots, you know, like they did what they had to do and, and, and they were paid for it and they got rewarded for it. And they're also loyal to Dr. No in their own way. And this kind of like, especially with the workers that worked, you know, um, at the at the guano mine, they had like their own kind of society and their own mini society that they, that, that No had there. And I think that made the, the, the adversaries very interesting. Going back to things, um, I even found. I've, and the allies were, were, were you know, my Coral, we talked about Coral for sure. Um, the camaraderie is so believable. You feel that Bar Bond has a heartwarming feeling about him all the time. They're that The Friday comparison is, is necessary, but I think Fleming subverts it. And um, I also find that um, even Honey herself is, is, is an ally. And so Plydell Smith, uh, Strangways in himself, interesting character, and even though he was only further, is all part of the whole... Uh, tapestry of characters and I, overall I don't know I think Dr. No had a really good bunch of characters in it despite the ridiculousness of the story and I give the characters and adversaries and allies both 4.5 well um, that's exactly the same mark I gave them and uh, All right. I was I was surprised to be giving them 4.5 but um, I like Dr. No I didn't like Dr. No as much as you did the character but what I did like um, I, mean, I did like him and I thought his story was interesting I liked the fact that he was maniacal he's this first cookie cutter crazy Bond villain and that's really important I think for that respect in its own it, it's important to, that we recognize that he's kind of like the um, you know the first of the of his kind um, I loved Quarrel I loved the ally side of things I thought the governor and uh, Plydell Smith were interesting characters I liked reading about them I thought that they had an important role to play in the story even if they are very opposite in them in this themselves, I like the the silliness of that sort of frat boy. Um, what was it you said about uh, Plato Smith? The, the, you know his um, laying pipe. Uh, yeah, the, the little laying pipe stuff. I thought that was cool. I thought he was a helpful guy. Um, Doctor Knows kind of henchmen were you know serviceable, but uh, Quarrel really. Um, Quarrel really is, I think, what gave me the marks here. I liked the, I felt he was the, he was Jamaica here because when we get to locations, I'll say a little bit more. But Quarrel really was the um, the touch of the Caribbean for me in this story. Um, I agree. I, I also want to point out too, we should we should have mentioned as well, and also added the four point five. Even though they weren't really villains, but the the sisters that ran the a sanatorium, they were kind of creepy in their own way, in their absolute naivety of what was going on. Yeah. Did they have naivety that was going on? That's the whole thing, though. Yeah, I really liked them. I thought they were cool, the sisters. Um, and, and really why they were calling each other sisters, if there's some sort of monastic thing at work here, um, it was cool. It was really cool. And they were interesting little menacing presences themselves. Uh, um, almost alien, you know. 
But yes. Miss Taro, Annabelle Chung, I kind of thought they were cool characters to be planted in there in terms of that intelligent network. I went 4.5, and I only took five points away because of Dr. Noel's unbelievable story. For me, I thought it was a little a little over the top. Um, but Well, the, the fact that he had, like, that heart thing, that definitely was unbelievable. Yeah. But I kind of see him, him like, I could see this. He didn't. It did. But the thing about the hands, that, that was kind of cool. It was because um, I could see his hands being cut off, and I could see him maybe surviving a gunshot that maybe that maybe missed his heart. Uh -huh. But then Fleming had to go and say, "Oh, he had his heart on the right side of his body." Yeah. Okay, was, sure. Uh, what, yeah, whatever, just, Ian. Whatever. Suspend your disbelief a little bit further, please, reader. Um, <laughs> you know, if you look at that mark, it's exceptionally high, and if you're comparing it to From Russia with Love, it's almost equal. But the thing to remember there, I think, is that we're not talking about this, these books in comparison. We're looking at each book on its own. And within this book, I thought the characters were worth a 4.5. Um, I agree. I, yeah, I mean, we, we can't compare them to Karen Bay because they're so different. We can't compare them to, you know, Solitaire because she's so different. But the, the characters, 4.5, the adversaries and allies for me. Um, I'll go narrative and then I'll let you do yours. I felt that there was some real suspense here. So on to N in the story. The second half just gets comical. The eat shit and die thing is a nice touch. I like that the kind of the narrative comes full circle for Dr. No in terms of how he built his empire on Crab Key and then it ultimately was a thing that filled his lungs and killed him. Um, the narrative was pretty simple and straightforward to follow. I got bored with the whole rockets and the and the whole radar and toppling things and holding the world or countries for ransom with uh, you know that, and even though it's part of the Cold War context, I, I thought it was kind of been there with Moonraker. Why are we here again? You know, let's just make it a little more simple, a little bit more maniacal for himself. Um, I, yeah, for a crazy maniac, I figured he'd go for something a little bit more world dominating. Um, the allegiance to Clausewitz's principles of power, I thought, was kind of a weakness in that there was no payoff. I also thought that it was a bit of uh, a lack of payoff with the whole bringing the guns. We think we're going to be having something important with the PPK mm -hmm. and the Smith and Wesson and there's no payoff with that stuff. So I felt like that time was wasted with the Boothroyd stuff. Um, it was fun, taut in places, uh, tough to suspend disbelief, especially towards the end. There's some really lovely writing in this novel though I felt and, um, but it was just, it wasn't textured the same way. Um, repetitive, lazy phrases in there as well. I mean, I've marked a few spots towards the end. The metaphor of the mouse and the, and, and the cheese and the trap I felt was cool the first time, but he hammers, yeah. you, he hammers you over the head with it three or four times in the same chapter yeah. that I'm just kind of like, okay, fine. Um, I feel like this you know, could be the first real departure into the ridiculous that this series takes because it's definitely a turning point in terms of the narratives. I don't think Fleming, like you said, wants us to take this one as seriously as some of the other ones. And it reminded me, um, as I was just thinking this one over, I remember Aldous Huxley, a very different writer, but he, he said in his preface to um, Beyond the Doors of Perception how he just kind of wondered what it would be like to take a gram and a half of mescaline and then sit down at his desk. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like... Fleming is on something when he's writing this last third of the book. I know he wasn't. I know he didn't edit a lot, and he just wrote his dailies and kind of wouldn't edit them until he was kind of finished what he wanted. This book feels really disjointed in places, and I think a, a stronger edit would have fleshed out some of the nonsense. But the nonsense also goes on to make him a shit ton of money, and it creates a series for us that we really love and enjoy. So I don't know how how I can, yeah. I can attack it, but. Overall, you know, I think we're going to have to watch carefully to see how the novels go from here because this was a massive departure in terms of yes. creativity and imagination and silliness. And so 
I gave the narrative for for its gaps really more than the silliness a three point five. Yeah, I got to, I fell on the same the same thing. Um, uh, it's a pulp novel in the last half of the book, basically. Yeah, it goes from a straightforward whodunit mystery, uh, automatically set in the in the Jamaica and bringing Quirrell back and whatnot, and you know this mysterious figure creating this kind of enigmatic mystery, and then all of a sudden it becomes like, as I said, like Doc Savage, like a pulp a pulp story, you know, like yeah, uh, it was just like an Indiana Jones kind of crazy adventure. Yeah, and yeah. that just got more and more co- by comical. I mean, comic bookish, like throughout the whole thing. Totally. Uh, I actually did like the plan of Doctor No. Well, I liked it on the basis that when he was trying to his privatization of power and whatnot. I again, though, I felt that seems like Fleming tacked on the whole toppling of the missiles to give some legitimacy to his menace in, as you know to the British Commonwealth, basically, or okay. to the Western world. And that's why I think Fleming tacked that on, but it does feel tacked on, you know, like if this was just basically like Bond investigating this guy who killed two British Secret Service agents because, oh, he's just a freaking madman that just, you know, Bond should put him down. It's just some crazy random adventure that Bond was put on. Then I, I would kind of I would have probably appreciated a lot more in that regard in terms of narrative. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, but yeah, fair enough. So what, what did you go for, Josh? Narrative. I, I I went with you. I went uh, with three point five. Oh wow! Um, okay, so far yeah. we're hitting the same marks then. Yeah, I found that um, with the last half of the novel, which I did find really exciting, even though it was silly, I did find it really exciting and entertaining. It was. Yeah, I did have the initial eye roll though when like, oh my god, is there actually a squid in there? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like no. I know. Yeah. Uh, like wow. Okay. But yeah, this adventure in the sunshine became something much else. And the ascension trees, I, I found that the, the eccentricity of Dr. No himself and the kind of man he was made sense that someone like him would create an obstacle course like that. Mm-hmm. So I found the narrative kind of justified that in, 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 in its own way. All right. Yeah. I can, yeah. Okay. okay. As That's... silly as it was, it fit yeah. the situation. But again, I fall on 3.5. Well. And let's I... go to the girl. Okay. Yeah, we will go to the girl. But I guess I, I just jump on the back of what you're saying there. We are dealing with silliness within the context. And so we can't think of this with the other novels. We're trying to treat each of these as isolated, entertaining stories of themselves. And But at well, the same time, we have to look at how the character is evolving and, and how the writing is evolving. And so yes. although we're looking at them as individual pieces of, uh, of their own work, we're, we have to think of them as series as well. And I'm, that, that's the struggle in this scoring system. But I think we're doing a really good job so far. I think we are. We're giving each book their own scores, you know, in each, each section of the book their own scores. And we don't want to make this – we're not basically saying this book is better than this book. We're, yeah. we're basically breaking down what we think is best about each of these stories and where their weaknesses are. That's yeah. what we're doing here, and I, I and I think that's important. Good. Um, I also want to point out, too, that there are moments of – each of the Bond novels so far I've seen, there are moments of a little bit of ridiculousness as you go on through the story, uh, through the novels. I think we get our first instance of the Dr. No kind of mad capness when, you know, you get to the sequence with um, one of the the brothers in Las, in Las Vegas, you know, um, having his own Western ghost town and dressing like a cowboy okay. and outlaw, yeah. having his yeah. train, his train, you know, the, what was it? The cannon yes. or something? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. quite ridiculous too. Uh, and we have moments of ridiculous with um, Moonraker too, with Drax, don't we? I mean, it's just, you're right. You're right. Um, and we're going to have to link all of these connections together. Yeah. There's like these two tones that you get with his novels. There's like this very kind of impressive travelogue spy kind of intrigue going on. And then all of a sudden, but you get moments of complete uh, escapism at the same time. 
Yeah. But that yeah, so but I think we pretty much covered the covered the uh the uh narrative on my end and on your end there. So like I said, three point five. Okay. Girls, Josh. Girls um, honey Ryder, she can look after herself. There's something charming, sensual, and ridiculous about her all at once. I bought her as a character, but at the same time, I couldn't help rolling my eyes at times. Um, yeah, but fine. that he wrote her with her own agency and not dependent on Bond to save her kind of struck, kind of maybe, you know, stick to her a little bit. I didn't like how he wanted to change her to acknowledge her own insecurities compared to other women just to please Bond. Her naivety was kind of fun and different. I was conflicted how I felt about her as a character. I mentioned this before, right? I mean, yeah, you did. It's, it, it's like I think it's kind of what Bond is like. You know, you're 100. Is the the blood's going in two different directions? directions you know, yeah. Um, her actual creation is frustrating, but her ex- execution was better. Um, that's kind of how I I guess how I feel about it. There was other girls too, like there was Miss Chung, the reporter at the Gleaner. There was Miss Mary Trueblood. They weren't very mis- substantial females in this one. Not even Miss Terror, even though she played a narrative role. Um, but I, I give Honey an enigmatic four. That's kind of how I feel an, overall. An, an enigmatic four. Yeah. Um, well, I gave Honey Rider a four as well. So far, we're hitting the same target. Um, yeah. The, the, her backstory I felt a little disappointed in because I felt like she deserved better. I felt like we deserved better. But um, interesting colonial history in her backstory. But at the same time, you know, the whole – another girl with a history of rape coming right after or very closely to another one. I didn't think it was necessary to make me respect her or to make Bond feel sorry for her, maybe? I don't know. That's why he sympathizes with her, maybe views her as a child. He still bones her, though, according to her desire to learn about love. And, you know, his lame debt that he owes her of slave hours, that was silly. But um, feral, semi-educated, she still has refined manners, though, which is very convenient, I found. Like, the silverware is still important to her at the end, even though she's been well, fucking licked with insects. That's her, that's her, her, her nanny, right? That's her uh, nanny. Yeah, in, okay, okay, fine. Holding but, on to that um aspect of her of her family's culture not that they use it i mean he just they just go straight to the bedroom anyway it seems kind of <laughs> unnecessary but um i like the i like the broken nose character flaw i think that shows a certain sign of cleverness on fleming's part um she's resourceful she's fun she's tough i don't think though that she's particularly strong so i'm kind of demarcating the difference between toughness and strength uh, yeah. she she acts tough and wild but she still throws herself at bond and needs him to help her out of all these new situations like she she's very resourceful but she's not particularly uh smart or strategic and i think that is you know not not in dealing with new things anyway yeah her but, her, survi- her, 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 her survival is based completely on dr no's ignorance uh, yeah, at, at her yeah, totally. and at the and at the nature of crabs in general yeah <laughs> Nature of crabs, yeah. What she knows about crustaceans really helps. Um, She acts... I I think she acts okay throughout the story. I find her interesting. She's fun. Her scenes are fun. Uh, Her dialogue is is fun, if if predictable, towards the end. Bond assumes this kind of creepy role over her, though, of like a lover slash caretaker, and that doesn't sit well with me. Um, Maybe maybe because I'm a teacher, I'm not quite sure, but either way, I gave her a four because I think within the context of the story, she's very interesting and she's got a lot of cool angles. I'd like to see a sequel of her, like a spinoff, you know, like what happens to her? I think that would be cool. But I think so too, yeah. Anyway, that's a four from me. So locations, locales, interior, exterior, as a travelogue, what do you think? Crab Key is a Coney Island ride gone wrong with a carnival twist. Uh, yeah, yeah. And also a bit of uh, Chinatown thrown in there in the mix. Um, Chinatown. Yeah, um, I, I love Crab Key in general. It's just this great, like, monster island, you know? And uh, 
you got, you got a bit of like Greek mythology in there, like with the whole labyrinth thing, like this, the whole setting of the whole of the, the, the glass dining hall, the guano operator, the conveyor belts, uh -huh. the, uh, uh -huh. the, the the mangrove swamp, the kind of the beautiful nature of one side with all the bird sanctuary and whatnot, and then the guano factory, and then you have Doctor No's lair, and then you have the labyrinth. All the aspects of Crab Key. Crab Key is a frightening but a cool place. It is, you know what yeah. I mean? I've, I've said a similar thing on my yeah. on my note as well. I went for that too. Yeah, and you can tell Fleming loves Jamaica and he presents a passion for its environs on the page. Um, okay. Uh, you know, he, he really does. You can tell that he likes it. And through Coral, we see that very strongly. Um, compa through Coral. In comparison, yeah. we have, yeah, through Coral. Like, we kind of see, like, no, yeah, the, I agree, the, I agree. the flavor of Jamaica through him, you know? And there wasn't a lot of like locations like in over geographically. I mean, there was Crab Key, Jamaica, London. Yeah. But I found because of Crab Key and, and then how he described Jamaica and then Morgan's Harbor and all that aspects of Jamaica, it, 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 he, he did it very colorfully and very vividly. Yeah. So overall, I give locations 4.5. Crab Key just took it over the top, in my opinion. Okay. Um, I didn't go quite that high. So I guess this is where we, this is where we differ. Um, I thought that the locations were awesome, but they weren't described as lyrically as they have been in Live and Let Die, particularly. And I think I want to pick up on something you said there about Fleming. Maybe because Fleming knows these places and he knows these types of locations, he kind of neglects to linger or uh, to linger in them. Like I don't feel like there's a lot of description of the geography. Crab Key apart. I don't feel like I get Kingston the way I would like to, the way he gives Harlem. And maybe it's because he knows it too well. Um, Possibly. Maybe, so as a travelogue, I think this almost fails because there's a hell of a lot more paid to the fictional place of Crab Key than there is the place that should be really close to his heart. And I think that they're nice. The descriptions yeah, we get are nice, but they're, they're, they're very generic. For example, you know, we, we, get, we get him saying uh, when he arrives in Jamaica – Bond's heart lifted with the beauty of one of the most fertile islands in the world. And that's kind of it. Like, okay, if it weren't for Quarrel, I don't think the charm of the place, the beauty of the place would really come through quite as much. I think the location... True, true. It's almost uh, like, the, yeah, like the character of Quarrel makes, uh, yeah. was, was where Jamaica really came out and not that's in right. the locales. I agree with that. So maybe I think about it now. Like, I'll think I'll go back. I'll go to a four on locations. Oh, I'm not. I'm not trying to change your mind. I think that. No, uh, no, no. You you've actually convinced me. And now, more I think about it, you know, I was kind of wondering should I give it four point five or a four? Right. But then I'm realizing more and more in terms of the, in terms of the story, uh -huh. how Jamaica was kind of disserviced. I think I did like the description of Jamaica, like when they flew over it, how he described like landing in it. Like Fleming does the the aerial plane travel description so well. Right. But yeah, then he when he got into Kingston itself, and yeah. I mean, we focused on he focused on the more municipal, like uh, he did, the civil, yes. like yeah. the much more institutional aspects of Jamaica, like yep. Queens Club and, and the government, House. government yeah. house and stuff uh -huh. like that. Uh -huh. So, and 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 there's nothing else that he described that we wasn't fleshed out in much better detail in Live and Let Die, anyways. No, so. that's right. And we get we get the look at colonial life here that we don't get in Live and Let Die, but we don't really get much outside of what Coral offer us through the joy boat and his own little yeah. his own. It's little almost position. like Fleming's kind of felt like we were kind of been there, done that, so he didn't go into too much detail with Jamaica, maybe. Maybe, but or maybe he just didn't find. Maybe he maybe he just didn't find. Uh, because it wasn't a different place, he didn't go over an over description. It's almost like he knew that well. I know what it looks like and I'm describing it, but I'm not going to, you know, go into vivid detail about it because uh, it's just, it just didn't come to him to do it that way. You know, he, I guess maybe he wasn't excited about writing it. Yeah, maybe. Well, I gave it a four. So um, I, I, I went four as well. And maybe that lack of excitement is kind of 
showing off here now. A four is still a good mark, though. Uh, and I think most of the four comes from Dr. Lo Dr. Nose Lair and Crab Key itself because all of it is just really wildly fun. Some of it's ridiculous, yeah. of course, as we've already said, but it's wildly fun. I like the interior designs of uh, and the detail that Fleming paints Dr. Nose Lair in with the carpets and the, the lamp, even the lampshades and, uh, you know, that big aquarium view of the ocean. Yeah, Adam. Ken Adam, you got to admit, like he was yeah. Ken Adam. He was the main production designer for the Bond films. He did a great job with, with uh, Crab Key in the film. It wasn't as crazy as it was in the book, but like the lair of Doctor No and stuff, and the whole sanatorium, yep. and the bauxite yep. and the island itself. Like, he did a good job with that. Especially on a limited budget, I felt he brought yes. a, lot, a, a lot of the features of the book nicely to life in the film. But as an aside, I really miss Professor Dent in, <laughs> in the book version. I thought he would be in the book version. Well, he's not. Um, and, and Anthony Dawson is awesome, you know, uh, just based on, you know, him and Dr. No and also in um, uh, a dilemma for a murder. So I suppose it I mean, for the viewing audience, uh, maybe a dent is easier on screen than a bunch of Chinese Negroes. I, 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 I kind of agree. Yeah. The kind of like the white, the white man yeah, who is exactly. subservient to the. Fu Manchu more, uh, uh -huh. he, I, yeah, to the Fu Manchu villain. Mm -hmm. And he's also necessary in the film to create the suspense that we don't get from the reading because he's terrified of Dr. No himself, right? So that kind of helps before we meet Dr. No to know that, okay, white people should be afraid of him, right? Exactly. I agree. Um, okay, so that's fours from both of us. So far, we're right on tap. Uh, let's move to equipment and see what happens. I'll start, and then you can finish if you're happy with that. Um... The equipment here, as we've already said, creates a bond to survivor more than bond to secret agent. We got the bamboo straws, the wire mesh, the chair slash um, spear, the knife that he gets and then uses uh, to sharpen, or he sharpens on the on the stone at the dinner knife. We get the lighter, um, the strips of cloth that he uses. It's all about resourcefulness on his part. Yes. The guns at the beginning is really, uh, it's a no payoff with that, so I'm kind of Kind of, I, I think it's a deliberate subversion, though. That's kind of my feeling I know, about it. But... And you, you've made a good case for it, but I'm just speaking yeah. my feelings for it. Um, of course. Dr. No's use of the centipede, the ob obstacle course, the dragon, the giant squid, uh, the fully loaded room, of course, and all the, the detail of the – and it's not quite equipment used in that way, but you get all the luxurious comforts of, like I said, the bath salts and the soaps and all of that. that that's noticeable detail, which I don't think is just product placement. I think yeah. it. Um, I think it actually services the environment quite well, and so, um, like I've already said, though, like who's the poor bastard that has to put in the tarantulas and to fix up this obstacle course? I, I would. I would love to see that as an offshoot as well, um, but it feels like that could be like a robot chicken thing, doesn't it? Like robot chicken ever did doc, uh, ever did the James Bond series? Like they did the Star Wars. These would be the <laughs> these would be the stories that would be told. Um, <laughs> equipment, it was more standout Bond the survivor. He's in the tropics and he's surviving on his, on his instinct and on his, uh, you know, what he makes of the environment. So it's a different, different feel for the equipment here. Um, I didn't downgrade it too heavily, but I went 3.5 and most of that comes from what I think Dr. No uses quite interestingly, but it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. The giant squid. Um, I, I could go five or I could go one. You know what I mean with that giant squid? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. That's why I'm, I'm caught between going from like one to five because the equipment was pretty spare. Was. But I found that, you know, overall, Dr. Noah's equipped. Like, I'd like the reliance on the equipment of making his own stuff and whatnot. That's cool, yeah. Like making his spear and stuff and his lighter and how he used yeah. that equipment to his advantage. The crane, how he used that. The knife, how he used that. 
um, just the the, dra- the dragon itself. That was a really cool thing. The marsh buggy, I like the whole operation, how that was put together. Yep. Um, and just uh, this, the resourcefulness that Bond had to do, you know, like where he hardly had to, and, and the fact that like his, his his usual technology at at his side, you know, wasn't working for him. He had to get by on his own wits and not just his weapon. And I, I just I found that kind of like it's almost like it's it, it made it it made it actually a five for me, even though there was a lack of equipment. It's really hard to describe. Okay, cool. So you went uh, you went for a five on equipment. I did, yeah. Because you you really really liked the resourcefulness and kind of the shift from relying on things to needing to. So equipment then becomes redefined in this. It, it sort of does, but I also think a lot of the equipment mark goes though just for the whole establishment of crabs key of crab keys environs itself like the guano factory the lair the, the labyrinth uh the, the marsh buggy how the operation was was handled out, like the all, all this all like the luxury there all of that kind of stuff like it was just all really well um uh it made it very exciting and escapist and even the crane itself bond did utilize quite well at the end so I, he, I, did. he I'm used that you. crane well well you're gonna go five on equipment um that's cool yeah why not? Well, I mean, you're arguing it fine. I mean, you're obviously... Reagan Marsh buggy with flamethrower. Who doesn't want one of those? I know. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm scoring it too low. I'm, uh, but you're, go- you're okay. I mean... I guarantee you, if I get you a Dragon Marsh buggy, you know, pull up into outside of your house in, in uh, Dumfries there, yep. you would drive that thing all day and you would, <laughs> you would have a different voice on your marks, guarantee. You know what? You're right, Josh. I'm not going to five, but I'm bringing it up to four. You've talked me up a half mark. You could burn all the, all those seagulls hit dub freeze. <laughs> I could. I could do that. I'm, I'm going up to four, man. So th- let's see what that brings us. Cool. That, that brings you to eight plus eight is 16. That brings you up to a 21 for Dr. No Josh. And that brings me to a 20, if I, my math's correct. So let's see what we're we got. We're still kind of near the same, though. We're still kind of in the same area once again. Yeah, we're near the same. Um, 20 is the exact mark I gave Diamonds Are Forever. And let's see if you've had a 21 anywhere else. Um, you gave Live and Let Die a 21.5. No, 20 is, yeah, 20. See, I've given three books 20 now. Um, and maybe next time when we meet to talk about Goldfinger, we can do a review of where our scores are. But, uh, yeah, so you went 21 at a 25 and I was just a mark behind a 20. Very even. <laughs> nice. Cool. Uh, well, any closing, uh, remarks on Dr. No before we, uh, we say goodbye and look forward to Goldfinger. The seventh book. Release the Kraken. <laughs> release, That's all I can think of. Release the Kraken. Well, he did release yeah. the Kraken on his readers, and I'm not sure it was the greatest idea, but it was certainly entertaining. Re- release the honey. <laughs> release the honey Kraken. There's a honey yeah. monster over here, actually. It's a it's a monster that um, kind of like a, a creature that they had used to advertise certain type of cereal called the honey malt, well, called the honey monster, and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a Tony the Tiger. Uh, kind of like that, yeah. It just comes into your house like the gobbler. Do you remember the spaghetti gobbler? Mm, no. Oh, well, anyway, when you're eating spaghettis, uh, isn't it what, was it, what was it called? Alphagetti gobbler. That's what he was, the alphagetti gobbler. Is that some kind of like uh, Lovecraft reference? Or- no, it's not a Lovecraft Something like reference. the Cthulhu spaghetti? No, it's like <laughs> al- alphagettis, you know, the, the things you buy in the cans, like the Scarios or whatever. Yeah. Um, You buy them in the tin cans, like you're tin pasta for kids then the alpha getty gobbler was this uh, creature that came into your living room and your kitchen and kind of gobbled around and that's what it was anyway whatever ah, i see right old, well, old, well old, sir old folklore. Yeah, a little bit of childhood folklore we we've done the job on dr no the sixth book did. in the fleming series and we got nothing to do now but to say goodbye uh farewell adieu 
And if it's okay with you, um, in place of our theme music, uh, Golden Earrings by the Hunters, I figured it's fitting in um, respect of the book and in, I suppose, respect of Honey Rider to play Marianne by Peter Ricardo. You happy? I'm happy. If Mama don't know now, she can guess my bias. All day, all night, Marianne. By the seaside, sifting sand. Why, even little children love Mary Ann.